Welcome everyone. Hesitation is defeat. This is SMGP 11. I'm David Rad, veteran writer of Games Industry Biz, Industry Gamers, and Gamer Feed. With with me to give some something pithy is Tuesday. Yes, I am Tuesday, and this week I have satisfied a request. <laughs> Excellent. I can only assume that means you actually played Boyfriend Dungeon. Actually, it does. <laughs> and and I have opinions on it, so... Excellent, excellent. That's mainly what I wanted to hear. I can't say why exactly that piqued my interest so much, but it's just such an interesting combination of things. Mm-hmm. And you sent a funny screenshot to me over the week, and I, I was like, <laughs> I made the right choice pushing to yeah. complete this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I will mention the context for that screenshot as well. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. But before we get to that, let's get to housekeeping from the past week. Now, something I want to specify, we talked about different Marvel licenses. Uh, Fox owned the X-Men live-action movie rights, while Sony owns the same for Spider-Man. Yes. They don't own the characters in any other context. But because Disney is a jealous license holder, they definitely moved to diminish the characters that they did not own over the past decade or so. Yeah, that was um, that was one of the big things about Marvel Ultimate Alliance three when that came out is that they were finally like they were showing off that. Oh, yeah, now we have Wolverine to use in whatever we want. Well, they could have always done that. That's the thing. It's just that. Disney barred them from doing it. That I feel like they benefited from people's ignorance about that. That's saying like, oh, mm-hmm. they can't use it because Fox owned it. But the answer is no. They only owned the specific rights dealing with those movie characters. So like if Fox wanted to license those specific movie characters for games, then they would own that. But all other things is owned by Disney. Mm-hmm. So... That is the reason why there are no X-Men in Marvel versus Capcom Infinite. Okay. Yes, yes. Now I do remember that. And that was such a weird thing, too, because Marvel versus Capcom 3 had Wolverine right in the front. Because <laughs> it's not one of those games without Wolverine. Capcom, when they made number three, was clearly able to push them to include certain iconic characters from two. Mm-hmm. Uh that includes Storm, Sentinel, Wolverine, as you mentioned. They didn't get all of them. Like, Gambit wasn't in there. I know a lot of people yes. like Gambit. But by the time of, of Infinite, then there was no moving them. There was no X-Men characters in the game at all. And I would say that was actually part of the reason why it failed. Because there was a strong connection between the X-Men and that classic Marvel versus Capcom series. Yeah, I would say so. Because they it started out with the X Men with X Men Children of the Atom that got X Men characters rendered by Capcom. So, mm-hmm. uh, but now at this point, like Disney owns Fox, so they have reacquired the rights via the most heavy-handed means possible, and a lot of rights have returned back to Marvel over time just because various companies haven't done enough with them. So Spider-Man is basically the last holdout. Yeah. 
And that's part of the complex equation why the new Spider-Man games are exclusive to Sony's consoles. Which makes complete sense. Yes, and uh, because I'm sure that was just part of whatever deal they had in getting Spider-Man in the Avengers movies. And Mm. I'm sure that's an ongoing discussion. I know that Marvel would love to have all of that back, but it is a weird deal that I think as long as Sony continues to make a movie with Spider-Man in it every three years or so, they will retain the license. So because they can totally do. Yes. Like, and this is just, I believe it's for anything Spider-Man. So that's like a venom and into the Spider-Verse thing, whatever, as long as they do something with the license, they will retain it. And they will definitely do something with the license every three years, probably more often than that. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and like you said, that even counts with venom, which like if, if Marvel really, or if Disney really wants to have a hand on and be jerks about Spider-Man, they can just keep doing stuff with Venom. Definitely. And from what I understand, after the new Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, which I, I should really watch the trailer for that, but from what I understand after that, Spider-Man and the Avengers-verse are probably going to part ways, and Sony is just mm. going to try and make a full Spider-Verse. Okay. I could be okay with that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how that goes. There's certainly enough characters in the greater Spider-Man universe to do something. Oh, for sure. I mean, there, there's a reason that he is one of um, Marvel's like headlining characters of all time. <laughs> totally. And on the game front, it's completely paid off for Sony since the last two Spider-Man games are debatably the best Spider-Man games ever made, but undebatably the most successful Spider-Man games ever made. Oh, for certain. They have crushed numbers, particularly because it. Um, I think part of it is because there was a significant stint of years where there were just bad Spider-Man games, and then there were none. And then all of a sudden there was this one made by, like, um, Naughty Dog, of all people. Yeah. And it's Insomniac, not, not Naughty Dog. Oh, Insomniac, yes. I apologize. Yeah. Um, yeah. Insomniac, of all people, who made this just gigantic, fantastic game that people had not seen in a long time. So... And people love their Spider-Man, so... Yeah, it's realized the dream of a large open-world New York with Spider-Man, which is kind of fundamentally what people wanted for a long time. Mm-hmm. More fully realized in with full HD next-gen graphics and everything. And I was mm-hmm. wondering if people would be completely down for Miles Morales, but they they apparently are, so good for yeah. them. And yeah, also- yeah. And that is also the reason why Spider-Man is planned to come exclusively to PlayStation versions of Marvel Avengers. Yes, that is apparently still coming. Yeah, I was wondering about that when you mentioned that. I was like, wait, didn't they cancel that? Did they cancel that? (laughs) It is still coming, apparently. They're still doing content updates. I guess some people are still playing that game. It's the people at the Square Enix offices who they have to play it. (laughs) Maybe it's a contractual obligation at this point. Yeah. But for the Onimusha remaster, you noted you can hit a button to change weapons, yes. which is an improvement over the original games where you had to select weapons from the pause menu. Mm-hmm. All of Capcom's games from games for that generation, from Onimusha, Devil May Cry, and Resident Evil, had similar systems, and it was probably done to hide short loading sequences. Yeah. And I have to say that is definitely something that is a huge improvement since like 
going into the menu to change your weapon like that simply discouraged you from changing your weapon all that much, to be frank. Right, right. And it's actually a lot, and plus with some of the sections that where you just want to pull out your bow or your musket, that is also mapped to a button, so it's a lot easier for that as well. So it makes ranged combat an actual viable option. Like oh, not nice. you're not you're not gonna want to use it all the time, but if you're a crazy person and just wanna finish the second half of the game with a gun, you kinda can. That's cool. I'm glad they mapped it to a button because those mm. weapons were not particularly good except if an enemy was in a precarious long range position. Right. And most of the time you just wanted to use one of your melee weapons. But that's cool. That that is a cool improvement and that just shows how like the simple facility of like having more memory now just enables them to make that much quicker and more convenient. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense because in Resident Evil, it does the same thing, but like uh, in, in the classic Resident Evils that is, but it is much nicer with Onimusha considering that the weapon selection is a lot lower and just more like focused. Yeah, that's definitely a modern convenience. Like, I know for Resident Evil 5, they switch over to a system where you could quick-select weapons, which was definitely hugely convenient. I knew some people liked the attache case going in there, but again, like, I'd rather not go into a menu to have to select a weapon if I don't have to. Yeah, the quick-button menu is always... I'm always a big fan of that. Definitely in an action game. And I will add about... Onimusha, I read that Keiji Inafune, he's the Mega Man guy who was at Capcom at the time, he commented on Onimusha Dawn of Dreams, and he thought the reason, part of the reason it wasn't a success, he thought the lack of real actors meant it lacked proper excitement. He was, That's... I guess... <laughs> he was the no! One that, he was the <laughs> one who argued for Jean Renault and the Japanese actor who played Samanosuke in Onimusha 3. And I just wanted to add that because I feel like that's such a bizarre reason to think that the game failed. Yeah, no, it. Uh, there are a couple of reasons why it failed, sir. <laughs> yeah. Blaming that is just bizarre in my mind. Anyways, yeah, I'm not sure if the Onimusha series had a huge future going forward, but... I did like your idea of it potentially being a Souls-like or something like that. I feel like you could revamp it in a certain way to give it its own lane. Mm. That's the thing, is I feel like if they're going to make a melee-focused character action game now, Capcom, they're probably going to make another Devil May Cry. In fact, that is that is what they did. They made yeah, Devil May Cry yeah. 5. That's Which just... was a massive success for them as well, so... Yeah, but I feel like if you made Onimusha, like more RPG and a little bit slower and more strategic then it could potentially be a big hit. But this that's a lot of theoreticals there. Yeah, yeah. Or they could just remaster Onimusha Tactics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to happen. Yep, that's the next on their list, definitely. Next Bring to Blade me. Warriors as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, Blade Warriors. I remember looking at a copy of Blade Warriors in a GameStop way back in the day, and it has one of the ugliest box arts i've ever seen it's just like a screenshot from the game mm -hmm. like blown up and i think it has 
Jubei and Summonosuke locking swords on it, and it just looked really, really bad. And I remember using that as an example to a friend of just how I feel like at the time they were obsessed with using in-game assets for American box art. And I'm just like, just do something more stylized, like have some art on your front. Like, what harm does that do? This just looks ugly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was weird because I remember seeing box art for... Yes, you are correct. That is a horrible box art cover. Um, <laughs> and um, it's weird because both Onimusha 1 and 2 have like this kind of black and white um, theming to it with just like a picture of either Samonosuke or Jubei, depending on the game. Um, the third one doesn't do that. I believe it's just a picture of both Samonosuke and uh, Jean Renault. And Dawn of Dreams is just one of the uh, main character. But yes, that is terrible box art. And <laughs> that is exactly what you're describing. I think the only way that I could improve that description is by like saying that there's kind of like a cartoony explosion behind them as well. It's it's terrible. There you go. Yeah, I'd recommend everybody look that up and go like, man, that looks like it was thrown together in five minutes. <laughs> and you're like, oh, crap, this ship's tonight. We have to fix this. Yeah, I. I don't know how they thought that was acceptable, but and I just want to add that I had a brief discussion in a forum for the Escapist. Somebody was asking if, with the new patch of Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, if it was playable on PS four, and somebody responded kind of in the affirmative, and I gave more details, saying they're playable now, but I'd suggest looking at some comparison videos. The old-gen console versions are very stripped down in order to be stable and playable. Decide your own level of comfort when it comes to play playing that, given that the new-gen versions are almost certainly going to be much better. And the person responded like, well, I have a PS4, and I don't see myself paying full price for a game looking like that. I guess I'll wait for a Christmas sale. So I mm. did some good there with my information over the game. That's the main thing is... Obviously, the story is going to be the same, so you have the same basic narrative if you're so desperate to play that, but I would really recommend against people playing the game on a base Xbox One or PlayStation 4. It really, really looks bad by comparison. It is just a lesser game. It is a full PS ver Vita version of the game. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I don't know, David. I've seen better. I, I've seen worse PS Vita versions, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because that is exactly what it looks like. Like it's just so stripped down and bare. I yeah, I remember the first time you sent me gameplay of that. That was my first thought. I was like, wow, is this running on a Vita? <laughs> and that is kind of what those old gen systems are now to the new gen versions, really, yeah. as far as the uh, the power. And I mean, that's part of the problem that the Vita came into is that it had like maybe approximately half the power of a PS3. So it could kind of run those games if you did a little work. It would require mm -hmm. a bit of work to make them actually run smoothly, but they were noticeably less pretty and had fewer polygons. But like, anyways, like that kind of PlayStation 2.5 D power was. Yeah, kind of for kind of for the best reference point, I will always point to Resident Evil Revelations 2 um, on the PS Vita compared to Resident Evil Revelations 1 on the 3DS. <laughs> I mean, Revelations on the 3DS was the first version of that game. Yes, very true. Very true. 
It originally came to 3DS so and was later given an HD port. So that was ported forward. And yes. by contrast to that, Revelations 2 was ported backwards to the Vita. And isn't that the one where like the load times are like 20 seconds or more? And oh, 20 seconds is generous. Uh, 20 <laughs> seconds is the Switch version. I would say the Vita version is probably like 45 seconds to a minute. We're looking at Duke Nukem Forever loading times, personally. Ouch. Yeah, and yeah. watching it run, it's just chunking up all over the place. It clearly... Am I, am I thinking of the right game here? Like, yes, yes, you are. Just clearly a version that you just don't want to play. Like, it's barely playable. And I, I remember, and I still laugh occasionally about your comment, where you said, I don't know, Tuesday, that looks like a perfectly functional PSP game. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong! Yeah, for that's the thing. Like the PSP also suffered from that a little bit, but I feel like expectations were at least lower for that. Yeah, for when the PSP came out, since it's just like okay, this is just like slightly more powerful than a PS One. There's only so much you can expect, and I feel like some developers did some very creative things to get things onto the PSP. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, developers did some significantly less creative things to get things onto the Vita, honestly, and just kind of force games on there and they just ran like junk but as we're talking about sandlot who did um both uh edf 2017 and edf2 sandlot somehow wizards of working on different pieces of hardware and also the jankiest stitched together developers in the world i don't know how that works they were probably sitting there like crap this runs on a potato lamp we can put it on the vita they got some impressive things to run on the PS2, so they know how For to sure. make them. they knew they they know how to make some good strides with limited hardware. But For sure. But moving on to SNGP news. It was quite an eventful week. Wasn't sure if it would be after Gamescom, but mm-hmm. it definitely was. And we're gonna lead off with one of the things that Tuesday brought up to me early and I think it's definitely relevant to talk about with when it comes to the people's republic of china yes uh china is um putting a um time restriction on minors uh for online gaming um it is starting this week uh so the week of august 31st um minors will only be allowed an hour of playtime between 8 and 9 p.m on friday and weekends and public holidays um so this is a huge restriction. Um, previously, um, minors were allowed to play 90 minutes on weekdays and the three hours on the weekends for children. Um, but this is just a significant crackdown. Um, there was a bit of a dip um, in businesses. Um, I am seeing reports that um, from an analyst, Alicia Yap at City, um, who says that she is expecting there to be a um, low single-digit hit to China revenue for both Tencent and NetEase, which are um, which are these companies that work with um, both game development and um, online gaming. Um, but the reason for this is that a lot of parents are saying that um, their children's addiction to online games have affected their studies, um, as well as their physical and mental health, and um, this is causing um, government to create this crackdown. Um, there is, uh, people were wondering how this was going to happen, but I have read that, um, China has a, um, registration 
or if you play online games uh, so that they can check up on you. So I'm sure that they will um, instill um, a sort of um, bandwidth limitation for that as well. Uh, but yeah, that is a that is a strict limit. Three hours, particularly considering that a lot of Chinese gamers play MMOs. Definitely, and they tend to be very time dependent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is something that people have been worried about for basically a while. Anybody who's paying attention, I remember reading just earlier this summer it was a editorial in Games Industry Biz talking about how there was this editorial on one of China's publicly owned newspapers, publicly owned, state owned. And they basically talked about the bad parts of online games to today's youth. And it's always very notable in a state-owned newspaper in a totalitarian state like China that's basically the government coming out and saying, hey, we, we don't like this. And it initially got pulled from the front page but remained up when a couple of China's bigger internet companies took a stock hit because of that, but it turned out to be very prescient. And I have to say, it is part of the dangers of doing business in the country since the stroke of a pen legislation, as compared to the United States and the West, which does not have rule by fiat and a one party system. For China, they can simply have this come from the top down and often will in certain other areas. So, yeah, this is a huge thing. And I'm sure for a lot of people, they might look at this and go, how would this even be enforceable? And to your point, like there, China has ways of doing things like you have to actually, I believe, log in with a mm-hmm. particular login and they actually keep track of it. Yep. Which... In the United States, that would never happen because it would be far too invasive. But mm. in China, they they can and they do. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that is again showing part of the uh, troublesome nature of the market and why other companies should be worried about doing business in that region just because you don't know how the state is going to react to certain things. Right. Uh, and in this case, like this is like curbing potentially hours every week from game players. Like since China has such a huge population that is affecting hundreds of millions of young people. So yeah, if you have that. If you have that many young people and you curb an hour a day from all of them, like obviously not all of them are going to be playing games, but we are still talking about many, many hours every week. We are talking uh, hundreds of thousands of hours every week that you are cutting off. For sure, and I mean, like, I we don't know the impact that this will have on um, businesses yet. Uh, this has only been instilled very recently. But I'm wondering, like, is this going to um, shift some of the focus of marketing there? Like, our or our because like I know that the big thing that um this is in address this is addressing is the studies and health of these children um and like I know that a lot of people are kind of concerned that it is just a one size fits all deal 
is that um, a seven-year-old has the same restrictions as a 17-year-old. So, you know, and like you said, this is something that can just change from the stroke of a pen, from the top down with no real pushback or change. Um, it's It's crazy. <laughs> it is oh, very strict, but like, yeah, that's just the th- way that things work over there. And it's one of those things that on a certain level, I empathize with a certain amount of worry about children spending too much time with online games, like open-ended environments. But at the same time, I take what I would consider the free and open Western perspective that that's up for the parents to to dictate, basically, mm. not for the state. Yeah. But that is not the way the Chinese Communist Party runs. Yeah, yeah, I and I would agree with that. Like, I I feel like I feel like it's part of parenting. Is that like you also got to set those limits? But like, that's I guess now that's taking away that as well, which is just wow. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> very. I I read this and I never had considered something like this before but like i guess since 2019 there has been restrictions to um games that uh people can play but now it's a lot stricter like it went from 90 minutes for children to just the three hours yeah that is a huge difference as you noted and certainly a lot of those games are very popular, like gacha games and MMOs and online games. Like that is basically all the games that are available over there. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it's been interesting to see that unfold. And in a similar thing, that's been interesting to see unfold. Apple, announced a significant U-turn for its App Store payment policy, allowing developers to promote microtransactions outside of Apple's ecosystem on the iPhone. It's from Games Industry Biz, talking about alternative payment options via email that users can opt into uh, without Apple taking their 30% cut. This is a resolution of the 2019 class action lawsuit followed by small, uh, filed by small U.S. developers. This is separate from the epic Apple lawsuit that mm-hmm. is expected to reach a verdict later this year. Apparently, it's being overseen by the same judge, so maybe this is prescient. We'll have to see. But This agreement will also see Apple launch a 100 million small business fund to assist small US-based developers. And apparently Apple will also expand the number of price points for subscriptions, in-app purchases, purchases and paid apps from fewer than one from 100 to more than 500. We'll also ensure its app store search results are based on objective characteristics such as downloads, star ratings, text relevance, and user behavior signals for at least the next three years. That latter thing, Apple has become kind of infamous for its own very black box take on how it surfaces certain apps and its own products too much. And it's definitely thought that they do, but that is just an ongoing uh, 
issue that well i mean like that will probably exist as long as the as long as the iphone exists which is for the foreseeable future Mm -hmm. this as soon as i saw this i knew this was a a huge move like something that's been going on for the past two years and i mean honestly before that in a non-legal sense just because that is where apple has made so much money is through the app store and selling games that have their microtransactions and they take a cut of each and this is an interesting exception right here that shows that obviously parts of this the law looked down on but it is potentially a huge win for smaller developers being able to do this and not having to to go through apple like that's been the whole thing since the beginning is the iphone has been a very closed uh wall garden mm-hmm. as the expression goes so this is a huge change and yeah as i said potentially a huge win for smaller developers yeah it's it's really interesting that this is the case because i know that um in previous years apple has kind of been pushing for a more open gaming sphere on their um systems i i mentioned to you briefly enter or exit the gungeon i apologize launched as a apple arcade game um i know that shante uh and the seven sirens also launched as a apple arcade game so i'm wondering if um successes like those are kind of the things that apple is looking for is to create a more open platform for indie developers because honestly i i think that a lot of i mean it depends. the The iPhone is a pretty powerful device for what it is, for its size. Um, obviously, you're not going to be running. Um, you're not going to be running like Cyberpunk on an iPhone. <laughs> but like sure. you, you can. Square Enix has done an excellent job of keeping their previous catalog on the iPhone. I know that there are a lot of SNES games, PS1 games on the iPhone. I'm wondering if this is something that. Apple is kind of hoping to breed more of a ground for because Square Enix has certainly put in plenty of time into the mobile sphere. And I'm wondering if like, you know, if Apple is hoping to sort of do that as well to have a more like a a market there again, a, a bigger market probably. Well, I think primarily this is something that Apple has been forced to do. True wouldn't be doing otherwise but at the same time i can only hope that this leads to a change in the mobile market since there's no doubting the money that is made in the mobile market but the thing is honestly what we're covering the AAA gaming sphere for the most part and indie gaming sphere that kind of exists separately from the mobile game sphere for a greater or lesser degree just because a lot of those gotcha style games are designed to appeal to a certain audience that wants something with flashy colors and just enough engagement to keep you going forward and also usually microtransactions. Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't have a lot of interest to me. And I find a lot of those games kind of depressing to be honest but yeah yeah i mean i i have tried a few of them um a few years ago i was actually a big saga fan and i know that they had a mobile game but i wasn't big on that 
Um, I know that Yu-Gi-Oh has a mobile game as well. Um, but it's not, I've heard it's not that great either, but, um, but yeah, I, gotcha games are really the ones that like light up everyone's eyes because they do have the flashy colors and the nice, like, oh, you can do this now, which, uh, is, is the big draw to a lot of these games. Definitely. They are like casino games that never pay out. Mm -hmm. Remember kids, fake gambling is better than real gambling. (laughs) And apparently people get dangerously addicted to it, and it can be a real problem for that. But Oh, yeah. I might want to, for a topic one of these days, talk about our own experiences with those sorts of online mobile gacha games. And I definitely had my own dalliance with them, Mm -hmm. and it definitely left an impression on me. And that impression was not positive. But. Yeah, it's it's something I want to give like one or two more tries to. I feel like there might be one out there. Um, the Fire Emblem game is pretty okay, uh, but like, uh, it like it's it's a gotcha. <laughs> it is definitely a gotcha, and has made a ton of money from what I understand. Oh yeah, it's crazy successful for Nintendo. Because again, like there's plenty of waifus for people to collect. And and they all have like different costumes. I'm pretty sure there's like six different versions of Camilla because she has six different costumes. Probably more uh, than six. Totally. I now whenever I look up an image for a different character in Fire Emblem, I'm half likely to find something from Fire Emblem Heroes since like Every character from every Fire Emblem ever is in that game now, in mm-hmm. one sense or another. So, mm-hmm. which is a cool idea. I just, I just don't like the monetization kind of aspect of it. But, but that's the world we live in. That is indeed the horrible gotcha future that we live in. But, uh, speaking of the horrible future that we live in. There was a walkout on Twitch recently. There most certainly was. Hashtag a day off Twitch. Yeah, on um, September 1st, a number of channels on Twitch uh, did not stream um, in protest of the hate raids. We reported on this a little bit ago. Um, For those who were unaware, there are hate raids going on on Twitch that uh, just bots will come in and spam. people of color, um, disabled streamers, and um, trans streamers, mostly. Um, So the idea is that um, by these channels going dark, that kind of silences the hate bots, uh, the hate bots for a little bit. Um, There was a petition uh, created by one of the people who has been um, impacted by this. Um, The streamer's name is... Uh, Lou Morrow, I believe, um, started this petition. Um, and the reason that they started this petition is because um, on August 13th of 2021, there were two significant incidents of hate r- bot raiding um, in one uh, stream. And the big, um, the big thing about this is that it was a charity stream and it was on Twitch's front page. So um, the petition was created it has um, a significant number of signatures already, um, and the uh, petition is has a few demands for Twitch to follow. 
uh, including introducing additional authentication processes, log IP addresses of users, allow streamers to customize criteria on how long a follower's account has been created in order to follow, um, banning, um, more banning, stricter banning um, procedures, including um, not being um, allowed to send messages to the streamers or mods or unable to watch the stream. Um, introduce universal slurs that are banned from Twitch. I think that would be, I think that would ca curb a lot of that. Implement better means to communicate feedback um, to Twitch. Implement the ability for moderators to accept or deny raids in a mod panel. And allow streamers to set the account age to allow people to chat on the channel. So um, essentially giving creators a lot more control over who can and who can be in their um, stream and what they can do. Um, like I said, there are a significant number of signatures there already. Um, it was started with the goal of 2,500 or 25,000. I apologize. Right now it's at 17,500 around that area. Um, so yeah, um, it's a lot of streamers, um, or at least a chunk of streamers did do the, um, September 1st walkout. However, there was some pushback from other streamers, um, with the idea that, um, this is only giving the bot creators what they want or that like they just don't have the means to do that. Um, so it's, it is a, uh, it's a tactic to use. And I, I feel like this is, I feel like it could be a start. Um, because the thing about, um, Twitch is that it is a very community based platform. So I feel like if there's enough pushback and enough requests from creators and streamers and, and audiences that something will actually have to be done. Yeah, it is completely in Twitch's self-interest to disable the uh, hate raiders and enable their creators, because unlike something like an MMO, like let's take World of Warcraft, for example, the argument against permanent bans for certain players who might be toxic to the community is that, well, these are the most engaged players, they're paying subscriptions, so on and so forth. I would say that was honestly incorrect as well, and you can usually benefit the community as a whole by banning those people, but I guess there was at least an argument for that. In this case, for the hate raiders, like, they are literally only subtracting from Twitch. Because mm -hmm. Twitch is a community, it is built around people being willing to stream, and then people giving money to those streamers, and that is how it generates money as a whole for Twitch. It's the circle of life in that. But if certain streamers don't feel comfortable on there, then people aren't going to give them money, and Twitch isn't going to get their money. So they are well incentivized to do something about this, yeah. along with it just being the right thing to do. Right, for sure. Like like you said, if if creators aren't creating, then Twitch is losing l losing audience members, losing essentially people that they can advertise to. Definitely. And I think part of the problem is with this just go back to the fundamental nature of what Twitch is and kind of the internet is to a greater or lesser degree and that it just tends to be permissive. Like, having people raid, like, that's seen as a positive thing, and I would say for a long time it generally was. Just having anybody stream into your, or log into your screen, stream, sure, why not? Like, surfacing that, fine. Like, that's what they want. They want people to 
interact with more people and finds new people to watch. And that has often been positive, but that permissive nature has allowed these sorts of hate raids and hate bots to exist now. Yeah. And I feel like they're going to have to conjure up a full response to that. I'm sure they're, they're working on something right now. It is probably not as uh, easy as it looks for some of these, but I am certainly hoping very, very soon there is going to be certain universal things. I like the idea of the universal slurs that are just banned. I feel like that would generally be a positive thing. Not that I go into a lot of streams where I see that. Unfortunately, I haven't seen a lot of hate rating, but I, I've noticed some of the people I know that stream uh, talking about a lot and saying how they have seen it and also smacking down certain known hate bots from joining their channel. Like, it has definitely surfaced in such a way. I mean, it's always been part of Twitch to a greater or lesser degree, but it has become a serious problem now, and it has risen to the level of national news, honestly. Yeah, for sure. I I, I think there is... It it might be difficult with universal slurs, um, because I think that there are. I I know that there are certain communities that you are re- trying to reclaim those words, and and I feel like trying to, like just crack down on that might be an attack on that community. But at the same time, I, I feel like there's just a, the difficulty is that with this like you said the kind of content creation and the way of the internet is just that there's freedom there's a a lot of freedom that a lot of people can use for bad purposes um i think that universal slurs is probably going to be a good idea i definitely think that adding account um time spent verification that's going to be a huge huge one to combat this because that will stop at least temporarily that could stop a significant number of these raids from happening. Now, if someone were to be patient about it, they could do it and then just wait a significant portion of time until that um, bot account was usable. But I think it's going to be enough of a deterrent that someone who is going to do this is going to say, well, it's not worth it. And I know there are certain other things that have been brought up, like potentially not making it so easy to create so many accounts with one email address. Mm -hmm. And again, like adding to Twitch's and the internet's permissive nature. And I do feel like that has to change. And in a way, it's always a shame when you look at this and go like, man, things have to be policed a little bit more since it's clearly a sign of a certain level of maturity for a platform and saying like, man, things have changed and now needs to grow up a little bit, but that's definitely needs to happen. It's not a shame in that like these things should be policed because they definitely should be policed. It's just a shame that like it is risen up to the level of attention that these things are so common that they need to happen, that like there's just so many people doing it. Right. That's that, that needs to be dealt with just to specify there. I'm just noting in the, because I've seen certain internet platforms mature before in a similar way, and they have to go through this similar sort of growth process. And I mean, there is something nice and unique at first when it seems like there's only cool people on a platform and everybody's enjoying it, but such is just the way of things. 
Yeah. It has to grow up eventually. And hopefully this can change for the better. I am hopeful for it to happen since Twitch is a great platform for people to use. And I've, I've met people over the platform. I've been entertained by it. Yeah. We largely met through Twitch. <laughs> yeah, as well. I, I am hopeful that those changes will eventually happen. And hopefully the platform will become better and and change for the better in the future, basically. Mm-hmm. So speaking of changing, there's been a lot of prominent people that have been changing jobs over the past week, including Brendan Green, who is better known by the online alias Player Unknown. He has left PUBG Studio and is forming his own independent studio. PUBG is, of course, one of the most popular games in the world and definitely helped popularize the King of the Hill style uh, games that are now everywhere in online competition. He's uh, looking for something new. He probably made quite a bit of money selling it to, I know he sold it to a larger company, I believe. Crafton, that's the South Korean publisher that owns PUBG Studios now. But he's still looking to explore systems needed to enable mass scale within open world games. He'll still own a stake in player unknown productions. So, uh, and similarly, as far as big players moving on, Toshihiro Nagoshi is leaving Sega after 32 years. He's reportedly in works to work with NetEase, which is a Chinese developer. He is most famously the creator of the Yakuza series, right up until the most recent one, Yakuza Like a Dragon. And that's definitely been one of Sega's most prominent and successful, both critically and sales-wise. Over mm-hmm. the past 15 years, honestly. Yeah, and it's more recently gained a huge English following, at least. Yeah, it went from a game with kind of a cult following in the West to something that is genuinely a big hit. Mm-hmm. Where would I would say that changed? I would probably say around Yakuza 0 when that came out. Yeah, I was thinking around Yakuza 0. I know, because I that was back in the day when I used to watch a lot of let's plays and i saw a lot of those going around for that game yeah that really turned people on to just the crazy nature of that game and the series got completely revamped in yakuza like a dragon making it into an rpg but that somehow was still a huge success a lot of people really love that game so yeah this is just notable for that and also just clearly how certain Japanese game developers for a long time they would exercise a lot of loyalty to whatever company they've been with but but now it is definitely loosening up in the Japanese market and even for this like joining a uh, Chinese developer NetEase to produce something like that that shows like how NetEase and also Tencent are just looking to diversify in different markets and hire up the best talent from all over the world. So that is that is going to be interesting. It's worth noting that this is reporting by Bloomberg, and this is in final negotiations. But 
I trust Bloomberg's reporting. Also notable, Lance Barr is retiring from Nintendo of America after 39 years. He's notably the designer of the Nintendo Entertainment System and the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. The design of the original Nintendo was influenced around looking like a VCR, actually. That makes sense. They wanted it to look different from most game consoles of the time. I guess less like a toy and more like something you can imagine on your television that would be less offensive. Anyways, that was the philosophy at the time. And the Super Nintendo, he reportedly didn't like the design of the Super Famicom. He, quote, saying he thought it was too soft and had no edge. Uh, It didn't look good when stacked, and even by itself, he described it as a bag of bread look. So that is part of the reason why the Super Nintendo has the gray and purple look to it, as opposed to the buttons on the Famicom, which are rainbow-colored. And I'm sure some people would disagree on him with that design of the Super NES, but the NES design is definitely very iconic. I would say one of the most iconic game console designs of all time. Mm-hmm. He also helped design the new style NES and the new style Super NES. The NES hands-free controllers for people with disabilities, the Zapper, the Max, the Advantage, and apparently also had a hand in the Wii Nunchuck. So he's been designing things for a long time. And isn't retiring, he said he's moving on to other projects, but he has certainly made his impact on gaming as a whole. Also moving on, Bando Namkai producer Motohiro Okubo. He produced Soul Calibur 6 and Tekken 7. He's he left at the end of August. He's he was there for 25 years. He had mainly been with Project Soul. That's the Soul Calibur development team. He apparently also produced Pac-Man 99 for the Nintendo Switch. Hmm. It's just worth noting since he when he got moved over to Tekken, he helped produce Tekken 7. And that's just notable since I believe Tekken 7 might be the most successful game in the series history. I believe that is correct. It has sold over 7 million copies. Soul Calibur 6 sold over 2 million copies. It's been out less long, but it is also generally gotten a bit less attention. But... Tekken 7 is perennially a hit at Evo. One might say, like, well, isn't Tekken always going to be popular? And I would say, if you look at the up and down history of Tekken, that is not necessarily so. If people didn't really love Tekken 7, that probably wouldn't happen. But people really like Tekken 7. Mm-hmm. I like Tekken 7. I've played a little of Tekken 7. Yeah, I am positive on Tekken 7. I haven't played a ton, but it has a ton of characters, a ton of variety. I love that there's characters like Negan, like you can have fights like Akuma versus Negan, mm-hmm. Walking Dead versus Street Fighter, and a kind of what even is this game anymore yeah. moment. <laughs> and there's also Tekken Bowl in Tekken 7. Tekken Bowl is great. I love Tekken Bowl. 
they added they added back tech and bowling. That's great. I didn't actually know about that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the main reason I play my fighting game is to is to bowl. <laughs> I know that was a big addition to Tekken Tag Tournament back in the day. Mm -hmm. That was definitely the peak of Tekken back in the day. I would say around Tekken Three Tekken Tag Tournament, and that was just back in the day when just playing fighting games with friends was just something you did. That was back in the peak of fighting games being something for everybody, and. Now I feel like it's more niche. It's still got some games with high levels of success. Like it's come back a little bit, but it's not quite at that same level. It's gone down the route of specialization the way a lot of things have. But mm -hmm. that is things moving on. That's the big stories. But for the smaller things, why don't we go to Tuesday's Hype Corner before yeah. we cover what we played over this past week? Yeah, so there are actually a lot of smaller things that have happened this week. Um, the biggest thing that I would say of the smaller things is that uh, we got more news on Gunvolt 3 uh, that is coming next summer. Um, so they showed off a new trailer for that. That was pretty cool. That just randomly happened, by the way. They just all of a sudden decided to say, yeah, we'll give some information about that game. Uh, I don't know if you've played Gunvolt, but they are very good games. Um Furthermore, um, a sequel to the Luminous Avenger spin-off game from uh, in the same series, it's denotated as Gunvolt Chronicles, uh, a sequel to that is coming January 27th, 2022, uh, which was not announced before. It was just suddenly announced and it has a solid release date. Um, so that's exciting. That is super cool. Um, furthermore, um, a couple more... Super Monkey Ball characters are being added. Both of them are not Sega characters, actually. There's Suezo from the Monster Rancher series and Hello Kitty. Um, both of them are going to be paid DLC. Um, but I think the biggest thing this week that I'm excited about is Marvel Midnight Suns gameplay uh, was revealed. Um, looks pretty interesting. I, I know we talked a little bit last week about the hype piece trailer that they revealed but now we have some solid gameplay um it looks a little bit different than what i was expecting but it does look interesting yeah it fully confirms it as a tactical rpg mm -hmm. and it's definitely going to be a turn-based rpg in case that was that's always implicit with tactical rpgs but you see it and you have a bunch of characters and they're just standing on a map and waiting to take action. And I was like, yep, this is a turn-based RPG and has a card-based battle system. You're mm -hmm. going to be able to make choices and connect with certain other party members, which is great. Main character, the hunter, they can either be a man or a woman. It's always great to have the ability to select that. Hmm. They'll obviously have a certain amount of customization, and it's good to have that be the player character since that's something some character that doesn't immediately already have a backstory. Since obviously you're going to have a bunch of other characters in this game, Marvel characters that are going to have their own extensive backstories. So, right, and they're quite the trailer revealed quite a few of existing Marvel characters. I'm actually kind of surprised at the choices that they are making. Um, Ms. or Captain Marvel. Uh, from her more recent appearances. Um, obviously, you got Captain America and Iron Man. Um, Robbie Reyes as the Ghost Rider, uh, who is, I believe, the second Ghost Rider. 
Um, you got Blade, who has not seen a lot of love lately. Um, and in the trailer, they also showed off some um, roaming area in this uh, mansion that you'll be hanging out in. Um, obviously, there's also Logan there. Um, there's a branching dialogue tree for conversations. Um, and like you said, a card-based battle system, which the more I think about it, the more excited I am for it. It reminds me a little bit of some of the roguelikes that I've played. Um, so I'm wondering if you'll be just essentially drawing a hand and then just kind of going through the game. But it looks very interesting. It's it's not exactly what I would have expected from Firaxis, who's obviously made the XCOM games previously. So this is a different battle system from those. Yeah, it certainly is. And they've definitely remade from things from the ground up for this and they're just drawing on their large expertise to make this game and i wish them the best yeah they put out those well-received axcon games as well as civilization of course over the years right and this is a departure for them but it looks well on its way i can't wait to see more of it yeah every once in a while and this is something that dc does a lot more than um, marvel does but every once in a while there will be a game that just reaches into the um depths of the lore of dc comics i'm hoping that this does that for marvel because marvel's got some pretty cool stuff yeah i think there's a lot of things they could hit on this a lot of unique characters as you said there's a lot of lore out there so uh, i'll look forward to seeing more and of course there's a lot of extremely recognizable characters right. like iron man and Logan and Doctor Strange in there, but mm -hmm. and that's coming real soon too. It's coming in March, so that's that's exciting. Yeah, it clearly is on the end cycle of its development. They're just polishing things up now, but yeah. But uh, in the kind of get dehype moment, unfortunately, well. I'm not even going to say, unfortunately, it's just kind of the way of things. Uh, Goichi Suda, a.k.a. Suda51, he released a tweet saying that No More Heroes 3 Final Bout All Out Galactic War will basically be the final game in the No More Heroes series. Mm -hmm. Said goodbye, Travis. G goodbye, No More Heroes. Goodbye, fleeting moments and days. Farewell to all Travis touchdowns everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting for him to make a statement like that because I this is I really can't think of in his uh, history as a creator of him formally announcing a series conclusion because uh, he's one of those interesting Japanese developers that basically does whatever he wants. Yeah, within the constraints right. of being able to do th and do things that people are willing to to pay for, but yeah, it is remarkably straightforward what this is, and it really made me remark like on the series history up until this point. Honestly, it's kind of weird that we even got a three since I realized when Yahtzee Kroshaw posted a review of Nova Heroes three this week that. The review of the second game came out more than a decade ago, and I was like, "How could that possibly be?" Mm -hmm. And then I realized, like, well, I guess it was a Wii game. Yeah, all all the time checks out. It's just it in my head. I'm just like, it couldn't have been that long since the first, since the second No More Heroes game. But no, it 
totally has been. Yeah, to put into context, I was still in high school when No More Heroes 2 came out. And um, then we skipped a generation uh, with the Wii U with that series. And then we got a No More Heroes game, not early in the Switch lifetime. So it's, it, yeah, it has been quite a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm even surprised that this even came out. Yeah. I was surprised that Travis Strikes Again was able to spark enough interest to do this, but I guess it did. This series has kind of been punching above its weight since the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's always been creative and kind of weird in ways that show a real author's design, even if it's not necessarily the most intuitive thing in the world. Like, there's a lot of odd design decisions. Yeah. Which are uh, honestly in a lot of Suda 51 games, but in this case, it looks like the series is over, but it's nice to. Releasing this now, this says to me that he planned for this to be the final entry in the franchise, not yeah. looking to be super optimistic. Kind of like the Shenmue thing, actually the opposite of that. Yu Suzuki sounds like he still wanted to do more, but without getting into details, from what I understand of the ending of Shenmue 3, it resolves absolutely nothing and doesn't really move the plot forward in the end, which is unfortunate because... I have a strong feeling that there's not going to be another attempt at another Shenmue over the years. I could be wrong on that, but that is just my general impression. Yeah, I would agree with that uh, from the things that I have heard about it. But, yeah, Nowhere Heroes 3 is the final game. I guess I'm glad that we at least got this. And I wish it would just come to more systems like Mm -hmm. the series release pattern has been very weird and scattershot over the years and it would just be nice if they came to everything like this one came just to switch it launched exclusively on switch it didn't even come to windows pcs i Mm -hmm. i just want it everywhere i just feel like it'd be nice if people could uh, play it everywhere like up until that switch port came out of no more heroes Two: desperate struggle it had only ever come out on the wii before so mm-hmm. i i will say that um travis strikes again did see a um larger release past the um initial switch release so i feel like it's not entirely possible for this to come to other consoles but again it's something that we'll just have to wait and see on like i think travis strikes again was a little weird in that like it wasn't a huge game so like porting it to other systems made sense um, I eventually plan to play No More Heroes 3, but I have heard it is um, a, a bigger game, um, a much more structured game. So it, it'll just depend. And I mean, Suda, like we said, Suda's kind of a weird guy. So, hey, he might just be like, yeah, No More Heroes 3, super mega ultra powerful edition now. Yeah. Yeah, it could happen. I'd like to see that happen going forward, but we shall have to see. But putting aside games we would like to play, let's get into the games that we did play this past week. One of the things I played this past week was Hardcore Uprising, which was the last Contra game that actually came out. If we are not to inca- if we are not to count Rogue Core, 
but it is kind of a sequel to Contra Hardcore, which came out in the Genesis, along with just being a general entry in the franchise. It was developed by Arc System Works, of all companies. This is about a, about a decade ago, they put it out. And it is a proper Contra fr- entry, even though it doesn't have Contra in the title. It definitely plays like one of those games. It fortunately has a arcade mode, which is a more traditional Contra mode, and a rising mode where you can basically earn points and upgrade certain elements of your character, including the number of lives and energy and some of your weapons and other elements like that. And I played it with a friend, and it is definitely a Contra game through and through, along with like some neat new additions, including seemingly because this is a game being done by Arc System Works, there is an, an air dash option, uh, which is attached to a, a dash on the ground. And it just gives you more options for movement. But at the same time, there's the standard sort of contra, at least modern contra perspective, that you can have two weapons. If you pick up two of the in the same slot, it upgrades to something slightly better. There's spread shots, machine gun, crush grenade, ripple, which is honestly more of a gradius weapon, but and it has the standard sort of difficulty that the series is known for. I rather liked it. It had a challenging design, but at the same time, I was kind of down for it. It had enough sharpness in the controls. There were a couple of frustrating parts in the way the respawns worked with co-op. Sometimes it would not, because there was particular points that they would respawn, and sometimes that would in two very particular parts. One, when you were ascending a tower, maybe you'd respawn Mm -hmm. ahead of the other person like at a a higher level, which, given the limited screen space, can be rather disruptive to the other person. And another spot where if you respawned and you were trying to jump and cling cling to a missile as it shot over to another area, like, if you died in a particular part and the, the other person advanced, like, the missiles would stop coming, so it basically force one player to die all the way like they would just have to kill themselves and not get not proceed on but those were limited there was a decent amount of creativity in the bosses like i give them full credit like it's kind of amazing to me that they put in that much effort into this sort of indie game maybe it's maybe its budget is less than i imagine in my own head but you can tell them making it they had a lot of love for it there's the series music composer for the Guilty Gear franchise also did the music for this, so it is a appropriately hard metal rocking soundtrack. And yeah, I would definitely recommend it as part of the greater Contra franchise. Now I believe I've played every major entry in the franchise. Note that I have not played Rogue Core, and I'm not sure I ever want to play Rogue Core, but that game, man. I can recommend Rogue Core. No, you can't. No, I can't. <laughs> not even you can lie about something like that, but 
Yeah, I can't defend that. But yeah, I remember reading about that game, um, and that certainly seemed to be the odd one out of the Contra franchise. Um, that being said, I mean, it does look pretty rad. Yeah, there's some interesting choices being made. Unfortunately for the different characters, I mean, I guess it would have been nice if they had different weapons. One of the things in the original Contra Hardcore was that all four of the characters had different weapon sets, so that made each of them play somewhat uniquely. And I could respect that. In this case, that's not the case. The characters have slightly different stats, like Crystal... Well, there's two DLC characters, the two base characters, Bahamut and Crystal. Bahamut is the all-around guy. He has a little bit more energy. He has average speed and average dash. Crystal has one less energy, but she has a faster speed for dashing and a much faster dash, which on the last couple of levels is actually hugely beneficial, particularly for the final, final encounter where you're having to jump between falling debris while shooting at a large enemy. And yes, this is about as challenging as you might expect. Sounds really easy. I also appreciate how the rising mode had an option, whereas if you ran out of your continues, you could resume at the last level you played. Rising mode was basically for people who did not want to deal with the super hardcore arcade mode, which is frankly me and the limited amount of time that I had over the weekend to play the game. It still took basically all of Saturday to get through. Never be quite sure like how long those games are going to be, but it's a pretty substantial game. And if you want to get everything, everything, it is a very hardcore experience talking about the achievements and trophies since I believe there's one that is just get 20 lives and make through, make it through the game without getting hit, make through the game without picking up any power-ups, some real hardcore stuff if you are going to get all of the trophies in that game. But I like that. And the other game I played co-op was Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Oh, I've heard good things about that game. Yeah, that game, of course, famously got a re-release. Ubisoft did the deal with Universal, since this is based on the movie property primarily though it retains the look of the comics. Let me get the good stuff out of the way. The look of the game is excellent. It manages to preserve the look and the spirit of that original comic and the movie to a lesser extent very, very well. It has some wonderful pixel artwork. The chiptunes are also excellent. And eventually you get a good amount of moves you can do. That said, my minor grievances with the game, well, not entirely minor, you have to level up your character to get new moves, which means that certain moves you get, you don't get until late in the game experiences, assuming you don't want to play it over and over again. Mm-hmm. But that just means some of your moveset is locked to you and is not accessible until late in the game. And I'm going to say that I didn't love that. I kind of think that all of those things should be accessible to you from the beginning and you just learn how to use it. 
So they made that kind of questionable design decision. Along with the fact that I would classify this as a beat-em-up RPG fully, because your stats make a huge difference in how well you do. Me and the person I was playing with made it to the final area, and we hadn't bought much in a while. You get coins that drop from enemies. There are shops in there because the game loves River City Ransom. And we went to this one secret shop, and we actually looked it up to see, like, okay, what are the differences between these things? Since, like, in also River City Ransom fashion, there are different objects that you can buy and consume, and they will up your stats. But just like River City Ransom, it doesn't tell you what those stats are. It was perhaps more forgivable for River City Ransom, a Nintendo Entertainment System game, to not do that and have there be a little bit more mystery. But anyways, regardless in this, we looked at the Bionic Arm, and did I mention this game loves its references? But the Bionic Arm ups your attack power by 50, and both me and the person I was playing with got this, and this literally upped our attack power, but I think about 130%. Oh, wow. So we were having difficulty on the final boss, we got that, and then all of a sudden it's totally cleared things up. The final level became much more manageable. So basically your stats are really a huge effect on the game. And I'm not sure I love how much it affects things. Mm -hmm. Also, there's just some niggles I have with the gameplay and the elements of it. Like a lot of enemies can block and will just kind of regularly block and counterattack you and, that's just kind of frustrating. A lot of beat ups will have particular enemies that will block you. And in this game, a lot of enemies can block you. And that, that can just feel frustrating. And along with the fact that the game just gets super busy. There can be so many sprites on screen. It can be difficult to honestly keep track of things. Along with the fact that there are often a lot of just objects hitting the ground. And they can often be struck and kicked into other characters and that can be beneficial but it can also mean that you're just constantly getting hit by things sliding across the ground and hitting you and being on the ground feels like it takes up a little too much time and there's just enough minor issues with that that i wish i could say i like the game more from an aesthetic perspective it is completely knocking it out of the park it is very cute. It looks wonderful. It has references to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, to River City Ransom, as I mentioned, to Mega Man, to all things pulled from the comics, but put in here in a way that is obviously not going to draw a copyright suit, but at the same time, it's still showing the general original love for those things. So I always appreciate that. There's just things that made me go man i wish i wish i liked this game a little better and part of that is just the difficulty i think of making a beat em up honestly like making a truly great one is difficult to find that balance between how complex should it be how accessible should it be how much rpg stats should affect things so mm-hmm. those are the two games that I played with a friend over the weekend. What did you play over the past week? What was lighting up your system? 
So to circle back all the way to the beginning of the podcast, <laughs> I did play some Boyfriend Dungeon. You know, I, I, I made good on a promise. <laughs> I didn't think I would because I the last time I played it, I wasn't super in love with it. Um, and still not the biggest fan, but it has done a little bit better. So what I found this time around in my adventure in the Boyfriend Dungeons is that I got a new weapon, so a new dating candidate, who I don't like their personality, but I really do like their um, combat system, as well as um, I furthered my relationships with existing um, candidates. Once again, um, I highly praise the writing. I think it's very well done. Each of these characters has distinct personalities. Um, like they, they are not cookie cutter dates. Uh, they are not cookie cutter dating. Uh, sim characters um, and I feel like that's a trap for a lot of dating sims to fall into is that like the creator will say yeah I like this this dating sim that I played I want to make my own and then it's just the same kind of thing this does not feel that way and I'm very glad about that they're the character that I am pursuing most has a lot of history with their previous um, significant other that comes up throughout the course of her dating of dating her, and that's very interesting. Um, another candidate that I was pursuing, uh, the one that I sent you the screenshot of, um, is actually a vampire, which, like, if you're paying attention to the signs, it's like, no, duh. But, like, the screenshot that I sent you <laughs> is shortly after he reveals that he's a vampire, and it says, sucks when bloodstains get on your good velvet. And I responded, because I'm kind of a weirdo. <laughs> oh, I know. And then the guy says, heh, just thinking of you. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> um, but it's it's charming. The writing is very charming. Um, except for the new weapon. I dislike that guy. Um, and the reason for that is because all of the other characters up to that point have felt very creative and very unique and very lively. Um and this weapon that I just got is a Korean, uh, so a K-pop star, and he's very boring. Um, like, ev every date that you take him on, he complains about something, and I'm like, I don't care about your personal life, buddy. <laughs> um, but he's just, he's just always upset. He's very boring. Um, but his weapon style is fun. He's a lot faster. He focuses on electricity. Um, so you can, like, kind of hit people and combo stuff with his electricity, and that's fun. Um, the story, I realized I reached a standstill until I was able to finish the dungeon. Um, I was no longer able to go on dates with my weapons, so they are smart in that they're putting you at a cutoff of you have to actually complete certain parts of the game to see other parts of the game, so good on them. Um, but to go into the combat a little bit more... I, it's not great. <laughs> like, I've, I've gotten better at it, and I will admit, but it is very shallow. Um, as long as you're using the dodge button, you can realistically get through an entire dungeon without taking damage. Um, so that is ridiculous. Um, the nice thing about the weapons is that they each have a different passive effect, which is useful. Um, the weapons that I have used so far, as I mentioned, there was the electric um, user, so uh, um, strands of electricity bounce off of other enemies and do more damage. 
um, the weapon that I am using the most. Whenever you dodge, enemies will get confused. So if you're crazy like me and just keep dodging, you'll never get hit. Um, the Vampire has a passive that allows enemies to bleed, which causes bleed damage, which the more you, the deeper the relationship with him, the more damage that does. And then there's um, a um, passive that causes confusion, which lessens the damage that you take. Um, so those are the biggest nice things about the game, but... I've I've found that you can also kind of cheese the dungeons in that if you just hit the heavy attack button enough, nothing can stand in your way. <laughs> um, so that's kind of a bummer. And like, um, the, you you do have a special move that you can use that like is either a projectile attack or like just kind of um, gives gives you some room to move around. Like it pushes enemies back. But I have found myself using it very little. Like there was an item that I could put on that would change my stats a little bit, that would give me more healing items, but take away my um, special attack. And I was like, that is not a trade-off that I don't, that is going to concern me. So I instantly put that on and I just cleared the dungeon. <laughs> um, so I have beaten the first of two dungeons and the boss battle was okay. Um, it was, it was very choreographed like the only move that the boss had was moving from one end of the room to another and shooting a wave of projectiles at you which you can roll through so i took no damage there as well um the other thing that i dislike about the game is that there's no real way to up your damage it's just like the more you um play the more you have health and like kind of the more the I guess the deeper your relationship you are with with your weapons, the better they do. But like, it's not a huge difference that you notice. Um, it's very slow in that leveling sphere. Um, the other huge complaint I have about dungeons is that like in each floor, or at least in most of the floors, there's like a specific dating area that like you'll have a quick couple lines of dialogue with your um, weapon. And once you've seen, once you've seen an event, you kind of know how it goes. Like they don't like have a whole lot of writing for that. It's just a prompt that you picked and then you'll see that scene and that's it. I have seen one scene at least 10 times. I can basically rehearse it and it's bad. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is a major complaint that I have. And hopefully um, the second dungeon has different dating scenes in the middle of dungeons. I, if it's the same, I'm going to be really bummed and I'm going to mention that the next time <laughs> I play it, um, in, you know, a couple of weeks or two months. No, I'll play it. I'll keep playing it. Um, cause I did get a new weapon at the end of the, by beating the dungeon, but, um, overall it's okay. The writing is the strong suit. The gameplay is not. Um, so hopefully and maybe with the new weapon that I unlocked, it'll be different. I doubt it, because all of the weapons kind of have the same combos. It's just the different passives, but um, hopefully things will change. I don't know. The The game needs some tune-ups. <laughs> it sounds like a better dating sim than a dungeon crawler, to be honest. It is, it is. And one thing I will definitely praise it for is it celebrates diversity. Like, there are people of color, there are queer... Um, queer dating uh candidates 
Um, when you start the game, you kind of get to choose what pronouns you um, use. It's a very celebratory game of diversity. Um, and the dating is as is very fleshed out, but the gameplay is not. It is shallow and boring. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah, from your description of the boss there, I was thinking, well, Enter the Gungeon, this is not. No, Enter the Gungeon is fantastic. Enter the Gungeon is like comparing a pamphlet on how to do your job to War and Peace with this game. <laughs> Yeah, obviously, Gungeon is War and Peace. <laughs> the description you had there, I was like, I'm pretty sure there's basic enemies that have more complex patterns in Gungeon than the yeah. boss you described. But oh yeah, oh yeah. But I, yeah, it's still an interesting sounding game. I'm still super intrigued with it just from everything you mentioned. But yeah, hopefully you can mm -hmm. get to the end of that and report back. Because and I've I've actually really enjoyed your impression. So that's another part of the reason yeah yeah I, I it's definitely a unique game i will praise it for its uniqueness i want it to play better <laughs> that is also understandable now for me you might think that i'm going to be following this up with talking about Sekiro. however because of that visit i had over the weekend and the fact that relating to twitch some Streaming and voicing over some VNs on Twitch, one of them being you, me, and her. I was watching those. Like, they did basically two weeks worth of things within the span of about five days. They hadn't done last mm -hmm. week, and they just, it all just happened in this brief period. So I was like, well, crap. That's what I play Fire Emblem Path of Radiant, not Radiant Dawn. I'm going to be screwing that up. Yeah. <laughs> until I put it down, but yeah. So that is what I've been doing instead in my free time while trying to get caught up on all those mods. And I have to say about Radiant Dawn, if I was not so stubborn as I was after this past mission, I would probably just put it down. And it's not because it's all that hard. I would say on the lowest difficulty, it is quite manageable. But it is just a matter of how much minutia there is, how much I care to manage all that. There's a certain point for me in games where the micromanagement, even if I feel like it's necessary, it just becomes a bit burdensome. I'm not sure if you feel that way. Yeah. But I've kind of hit that point, along with the fact that the story is unfolding very, very slowly. Yeah. But I am going to give it a full shot. I'm going to continue on. I'm just saying I feel the the lull in the experience, especially since I talked about the Slack before. I feel like right now there's honestly kind of a early game Slack in that, okay, we've introduced these new set of characters. We've implied that the major characters from the last game are still out there, but we haven't interacted with them yet. And I'm expecting something interesting to happen, especially since main character, the silver-haired maiden, Micaiah, has basically talked contemptuously of Ike. And part of that reason is because the Kingdom of Dayan was defeated by Ike in the last war for very obvious reasons, but like the Empire of Beninyon has come in and occupied 
the na- the nation and made it into a much worse place. And so in fighting for the freedom, she just does not have a positive opinion on, on Ike. And the reason this comes up is that Sooth, the other main character up until this point, will occasionally bring up Ike. And even though he's fighting for mm-hmm. freedom, he knows Ike, so he, he likes and respects him. But Micaiah basically mocks him whenever he does that. Like, oh yeah, the great, great high and mighty Ike. He's the reason we're here. Mm. So that's kind of an interesting thing. I'm sure Ike and Makai will eventually meet up, but I don't know when Ike comes into the story, and it's probably not going to be for a little while yet. And the other thing of just having to accommodate around, like making decisions over basically what units I give experience and looking at certain things and going like, okay, this doesn't have good growth. This unit is great right now, but won't be great later. This unit is super, but basically we'll be living at the end of chapter one. I assume all of that has to be smoothed out eventually. It is still kind of a mess right now. It is a totally okay game of that era, but you still have to deal with all the niggling things of a Fire Emblem game. The last mission I was on, there were archers and ballistas. And the main thing about that is you had to basically work around the ballista if you want to do anything at all, because one shot from the ballista would be enough to kill a lot of characters. So you have to plan the entire mission around that. It's the usual sort of Fire Emblem thing of you have to protect the softer characters. And that's Mm. a big part of managing the battles is basically making sure that the characters that can potentially get one-shotted do not get one-shotted. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of squishy mages in uh, Fire Emblem. Even squishy knights, honestly. (laughs) A lot of characters can be like that. There's one character named Nolan who is a warrior, so an axe wielder. He, uh, He has been a big main for me. He was suggested to be leveled up he's been part of the dawn brigade since the beginning so he's actually promoted that's another big thing in this game is that there's actually there's actually two levels of promotions uh mm-hmm. in the game like after you reach level 20 into the next level you promote promote to the next class and i realize a decent number of Emblem games have had that but in this game there is another promotion after that some units come in already promoted again like that's not too unusual but but yeah he is already promoted and he's been quite good there's also just certain characters you develop feelings on just their abilities and things like that and i'll remember certain things like the character zahark who's a swordsman he came in he's already promoted he's definitely better than edward who's the other guy who's a non-promoted swordsman who came in it's definitely better but then i remember like oh yeah i remember in my playthrough of zahark he got kind of screwed because his growth just ended up being bad because of rng so he ended up not being as good in that original playthrough as i would have liked mm-hmm. but he's been pretty good for me so far in this game and edward the other swordsman is one of those frustrating characters who's just like well it seems like they want him to be kind of a thing so- something that's somebody that somebody cares about in this game and he has super great speed but like he can't seem to kill anything even though he doubles nearly every enemy so that's kind of frustrating 
So yeah, just plugging away on that. I'm glad I have Jill, the Dragon Riding Knight. She was awesome in the last game. She is also awesome in this. She unfortunately hit her head and forgot how to use a spear in this game. Like, no unit can use more than one type of weapon, as far as I can tell, mm. in the weapon triangle. Yeah, so her she her brain is just the bag of spilling. I... I hope that I believe that changes over <clears throat> over time. But yeah, right now I'm pretty sure all units can only use one weapon mm -hmm. uh, just to start out. So yeah, it's just a weird mix of old and new characters and also expecting players to know what is going on in a Fire Emblem game, like a relative high level of complexity early, but at the same time, not trying to overwhelm them. It's just been a very odd experience so far. I'm hoping that it's evens out in the second chapter but i will i will keep people appraised since i will i will be mm -hmm. playing this game as as it goes on there's still a longish tutorial at the start of each mission and again in the things i do even though i often end up regretting them i will always be like okay you want to show me this tutorial okay fine i'll i'll watch <laughs> the tutorial be like i should so it's a Fire Emblem Tutorial Dawn. <laughs> dawn of Tutorial, yeah. Uh, dawn of Tutorial. <laughs> previous game, Path of Tutorial. But yeah, it's... It, it, it is what it is. Um, I, am, I am definitely mildly down with the game. I don't know what my opinion will be like it on the end. I will say that... Mm -hmm. The character Meg, who is the first armor knight you get, but she's incredibly bad. And even without looking at the guide, I looked at her stats and just went, man, like usually these characters are good. But I guess the context is she's just a peasant, a, a big bone peasant girl who found like a, a bunch of armor and is trying to find her husband, I think, or something like that. She just makes me think of like Meg from Family Guy. Like, I just expect all the characters <laughs> to be like, you know, who lets you in the base again? Meg. Like, everybody just throwing shade at her. She's... I mean, she seems like a sweet and innocent character, but she's also just bad to use, and I have been purposely excluding her from battle because she's useless, and I don't want to give her any levels. Mm hmm So. But... <laughs> That has been me in Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn. I'm hoping it gets a little... I'm mainly hoping to get more of the units that I really liked in the previous game. You know how Fire Emblem can be where you, you develop that good core of units and you can just yeah. go and like, you know, yeah, I, I can go in and I can just smash everybody now with this. I know what I'm doing every mission. Right. I definitely haven't gotten there yet. I feel like they're sandbagging a lot of characters. I'm mm -hmm. getting a lot of temporary characters. I'm getting a lot of characters that are just playing new. And I read about, like, I just got a, a knight, a cavalier. And I was like, great, is this one any good? And I looked at her level. I was just like, oh, she's like 15 levels behind my top level people at this time. Perfect. I'd have to put a lot of work into making her decent at all. Like that's probably not going to happen. So, mm -hmm. so great. Another useless character on the pile. And for the next mission, <laughs> there's going to be a three beast men warriors. And I wasn't in love with them 
in the first place because they transform between kind of humanoid and bestial forms and they can't fight in their humanoid forms. So anyways, I don't mm. like their limited nature. But anyways, beyond that, I know they all leave the party at the end of chapter one. So it's just like, great. I'm again, like just, just not going to use them. Like why, why would I do yeah. that? On the difficulty level I'm playing, it doesn't feel like my stringent nature on distributing experience would be hyper, hyper necessary, but I'm still doing it. Mm-hmm. And this is just illustrating and validating in my mind the decision to use a guide since there's no great clue that who is going to stay and who is going to go in the party. And there's always that frustrating feeling in an, in an RPG where you have a character that you've invested a lot of time and resources into and all of a sudden they just leave the party right if you have ever played dragon quest 7 i kind of think of it as dragon quest 7 scenario syndrome since that game had it really hard in a party where you you only had four people in a party Mm -hmm. there are certain points where one character who has been with you since the beginning of the game about 30 hours in he leaves and never comes back. And what? It does make sense in the story, but it is just super frustrating, especially since he was my most reliable damage dealer. And all of a sudden, I'm down to three party members from four, and my most reliable damage dealer is gone. I'm like, what is even happening in this game? And a certain other character will leave Maribel who's like the main character's best friend. Her father is, I guess, like having heart attacks that she's going out and adventuring. So eventually she just stops coming with you for a while. She does eventually come Mm -hmm. back. But again, she was my most reliable mage. And all of a sudden there is just a gap there. She leaves. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't have anybody else built up like you. What am I supposed to do? Right. Dragon Quest Seven. that's the one with the guy who looks kind of like Link, right? Yes, he is okay. a dopey-looking guy wearing green. So, yes, looking exactly like Okay. Him. Yeah, because I was like, wait, Yangus leaves? And I'm like, oh, wait, different game, different no, game. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I don't believe characters suddenly leave like that in 8. Yeah, 8, because 8 only has the four characters. I know that for sure. Yes, in the base version. I know in later versions, I think they added other playable characters. But, yes, I... Right. Once you get a party member, they don't suddenly leave. Yeah, which I think is the way that RPGs should be, even if it's a strategy RPG. Fire Emblem. (laughs) Now, I want to just say for the record, I still actually really like Dragon Quest VII. I actually played it as Dragon Warrior VII. I played it on the PlayStation Okay. That's a while ago. That was a while ago. That actually... It was a very late-gen release. I think it came out in 2001 in the United States, but yeah. I did really like the game, even as creaky as it was in parts. I am still very frustrated by certain other elements of it at the time, like just because I didn't know they were coming, but anyways. So yes, what else has been lining up your system this week, Tuesday? Yes, I uh, teased this game to you. I said that the other game that I was playing this week was a PS2 game that had been remastered. Um, And the game that I am talking about is Okami. 
I love Okami. Um, the first time that I played Okami, I actually played the Wii version. Uh, so I played a bad version first. <laughs> um, this time around, I am playing a good version. I'm playing the Switch version, which uh, I am not playing it with motion controls. Although I can, I, I am not. Um, I The reason I am playing it, again, is because... Um, <laughs> I suffer from Tuesday Syndrome, where I just decide to stop playing a game that I just played. Um, and I went from Muramasa over to Okami. Um, and I just love Okami. It's a really fun game. Um, I haven't gotten super duper far in it. I know that the last time that I played it was like three or four years ago. Um, and I had gotten past um, the... A big not final boss that looks like a final boss but it's not um so i restarted from there um this time i got through i believe the first dungeon it is and i just really enjoy the game it's such a beautiful game to play the controls are really nice and tight on the switch version um obviously the combat is also very good with the celestial brush you can use it as a blade in combat um I believe further down the line you get ability to just shoot in the air with the Celestial Brush, which is tons of fun. Um, right now I'm stuck with the first Divine Instrument, which I actually really do not like. As soon as I get a whip, I'm replacing that. Um, but uh, I just it's very nice to play, very nice to look at. And it's like it's kind of the feel that I'm looking for right now, this kind of Japanese countryside era adventure that's really fun. One thing that I hate about it is I hate Issen. I always hated Issen. He's so annoying. If I could have an Okami game without Issen, I would buy that ten times. Um, but yes. He is definitely the Navi of that game. I think on purpose. Yeah, and Navi is ten times better. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's it's just a really nice game to go back and play. Um, it's 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 got a very feel-good, like message to it that just you know fix the world make the world pretty again and um it's got tons of quirky characters and tons of fun stuff um suzano i've always had mixed feelings on um but he he i can come around to him this i i enjoy his goofy antics this time around the only thing i hate though is that um they have no option for tech speed as far as i'm aware and suzano speaks very slow um so that's incredibly annoying that I cannot just mash through his dialogue. Um, but other than that, it's it's a great game. I assume you've had experience with Okami. I played through Okami for the first time a couple of years ago. I think that Okami is a great like 12-hour game. Unfortunately, it takes over 30 hours. Oh yeah, that's right. I believe we might have had this conversation once. <laughs> we, we we might have. I there was definitely some some great elements to Akami. I just feel like it gets a bit overstuffed. And I will say, mm. for that boss fight that you think is the final boss fight, and the game kind of puts out as the final boss fight, I believe you have that boss fight three times over the course of the game. Like basically the same fight. Oh man. Yeah. There's. They repeat boss fights every so often. There's a couple of points that the game really could have ended before it does. Definitely the second one, if 
it had ended there, I probably would have had a more positive opinion of Akami at the end. But there is just more game after that. Mm. And I don't want to sound like I'm seriously down on the game. I just feel like after a certain point, the game isn't really introducing much new. And... um, but the game kind of continues on. And I feel like there's certain elements early in the story, like the first arc and the second arc are more interesting than what happens in the third arc of the game. Mm-hmm. So that's also mm-hmm. unfortunate. But yeah, as a proto-platinum game, there's a lot of interesting stuff with the combat and the use of the Celestial Rush. And you correctly noted it as a port of the PS2 game, since a lot of people think that it was originally a Wii game, I realize now. And yeah, yeah. I can understand why you might make that distinction since it has this celestial brush thing and you might think like, oh, was that designed from the ground up for the motion control? And the answer is no, it came out on PS2 first. So mm-hmm. that original... Yeah, that was the thing is that uh, the, the Wii version everyone was excited for because A, it was an expanded release and B, the motion controls. But fun fact, the motion controls suck. Yeah, the the idea of like actually having to use the Celestial Brush on everything, like having to do all the motion and IR tracking like is actually not to the benefit of the game. It No. <laughs> I played a little bit of the Wii version. I was like, eh, like it's just... I want to play, but yeah, but, but yeah, there's there's some definite charm in it. And I was talking before about how, like, I think the look of Scott Pilgrim versus the world has helped that game with certain people. I think, like, in just its charm, like, especially since there is actually a button that just summons knives in that game. And for every character that she summons, she does a different thing, like. For Scott, when he summons knives, she comes out and blows a a cloud that just says love, and that stuns all the enemies in its radius. Mm. I believe Kim, when she summons knives, they they smooch briefly. Uh, Yeah, I believe that's correct. Knives, when she summons knives, she doesn't summon knives, she summons her mom, who comes out and curses (laughs) Chinese at people. Like like I said, there's a lot of charm to the game. And mm-hmm. I feel like for Okami, like it looks and sounds beautiful. And I feel like that is definitely a major hook for people. Again, not to say that it's a bad game, but I feel like that will charm certain people and might distract them from certain other parts of the game that I feel like could have maybe been done a little bit better. But yeah, or at least a little bit more edited down. But anyways, regardless, Okami's still pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, they're like you said, they're the art is very nice, and there aren't many games where you get to play as a dog, so I'm I'm down with that. I really do like playing as uh, Amaterasu. She's very sassy and fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's great, and you know, I like the theme of bringing life back to the world. There's there is some really like like I said, if that game was twelve hours long, it probably would have been a five star game. And mm-hmm. for anybody who might be a younger person might saying like, how could making a game longer make it worse? I'll just say, just wait until you're older and you'll appreciate it more. Yeah. 
my patience has definitely grown thinner as time has gone on, and I and I can appreciate things now when they don't overstay their welcome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so hopefully I'll continue with that adventure. Uh, otherwise, uh, I'm I'll probably come down with another case of Tuesday syndrome <laughs> pretty quick. <laughs> Fair enough. Just as long as you get through Boyfriend Dungeon, which seems to be much shorter and yes, yeah. But moving on to our topic of the week, our SNGP topic, which is talking about roguelite versus roguelike defining a genre. Now, now this is a genre and subgenre that are things that I know you have a lot of affection for. Yes. And it really struck me when we had our conversation a couple podcasts ago, I believe, and we were talking about just the nature of roguelikes and roguelikes and what exactly defines it. And I do want to get into that. Uh, I want to start out by just talking about it in general, like the the brief history of it, because mm-hmm. maybe the history of certain popular genres will be something we'll get into before, but I do want to give a little a little bit of context. And just the context in us doing this, you talked about a couple of roguelikes and we discussed the genre as a whole. But also what mm. really struck me was Yanti Croshaw and Zero, Zero Punctuation did a double bill of two roguelikes. You did Undermine and Boyfriend Dungeon, and they reviewed two that same week. And there were two different ones, Dreamscaper and Jupiter <laughs> Hell. And I'm just like, holy cow, like... This came out in within the same ten day period. All of these games, like yes, rogue rogue lights slash rogue lights, are so overserved right now. Yes, it is a very drenched uh, genre, and part of the reason for that is um, because um, it is a very popular genre among indie developers. Because um, I feel largely because that is because of a certain game that we will be talking about a little bit later. Definitely, uh, Binding of Isaac. <laughs> Definitely. We'll, we will be talking about Isaac. And I know another element of it is it's honestly easier in a way to... Well, I, I'm going to back up that statement a little bit. There are things that are easier about randomized generation than as opposed to set levels. Mm-hmm. Along with the fact that it just gives a game inherently more replayability uh, that obviously a lot of players are into, but if you have a non-procedurally generated thing, then you have to really craft it in a certain way. And this mm-hmm. kind of removes some of that. So I can understand the temptation for doing that. Again, like I got that from Yahtzee Croshaw, who commented on when he did a, a game with roguelike elements, the Consuming Shadow, that has randomized elements, that that is part of the reason why he did it. Uh, it's just because it's easier than generating all of the dungeons and things on your own is to make it somewhat procedural. Yes. And they, uh, Yossi had the great quotes at the beginning of that double bill saying, but let's see out another droughty summer with an one last indie double bill, focusing on that one special genre that is to indie games what intestinal parasites are to inexpensive Mexican food. And... I laughed at that since it indeed roguelikes have somehow become the king of indie games. Yes. 
But to give a little bit of context of the history of roguelikes, there were multiple random dungeon generating games that came out in the late 70s and early 80s, but Rogue was really the one that ended up popularizing the genre the most. So thus part of the reason why it was named that, along with a Usenet discussion that instead of dungeon just got named roguelike, I guess there was a discussion there and they it was picked as the least of all available evils as far as something to name it after. So it ended up becoming roguelike. And who know how consequential that w- that was among those small group of internet nerds back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it definitely was. There were other games like Hack and Moria that were also distinct strains trying to do very similar things, which are basically these procedurally generated dungeon using ASCII artwork, usually. Mm-hmm. And all based on the ideas of Dungeons and Dragons, honestly, of going down through a dungeon and slaying monsters and getting more powerful and getting to the end, hopefully, and nothing retaining, uh, in part because it was just the limitations of the hardware at the time. But also, apparently, the developer of Rogue said that he wanted to create some tension in making choices to make them consequential. So... Mm -hmm. So that is how it d- developed into a strain of game that was very popular among some people through the 80s and 90s in the West. But it was only popularized in Japan because of the mysterious dungeon games. Right. Which saw strains from Dragon Quest, Final Fantasy, and Etrian Odyssey over the years. And... To speak just in general terms, again, I'm running through things very quickly, but just to give some context, like what really helped introduce it to modern indie games and change the way people see these roguelikes. And in fact, I would say like really kicked off rogue likes lights as we know it is Spelunky. That game came out in 2008 and basically every indie developer since then has said Spelunky was a huge influence on them, including Isaac. Yes, I do remember that. But I would say the game that was the most influential going forward of like all those various indie games that were popular, uh, Roguelite, definitely Binding of Isaac was the most. But Yes, absolutely. And part of that is because of how um, expansive the game was at the time. Um, it was originally a Flash game, um, and I have read that Edmund McMillan kind of said, well, let's see what limits we can push with this. Um, so that is the reason why there is a lot of crazy-ish that happens in that game. But <laughs> it is, it's a, uh, the original version, which is still available on Steam, uh, runs on Flash and is significantly shorter than anything you can get right now, as far as if you're looking for, um, the most up-to-date Isaac. But, um... It, it, I read that he kind of released it, didn't expect anything to happen, and then all of a sudden one day, Binding of Isaac was at the top of Steam because I, because a um, a couple YouTubers started playing it and really enjoyed the depth of it, and so then it went on to release Rebirth, Afterbirth, and now just recently Repentance. But it has been a huge smash hit for the uh, roguelike and um, indie genre for both roguelike as a genre in the indie sphere. 
Yeah, totally. And I want to get into particular games and their importance a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But now having very briefly run over the history, the bam, 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 bam history, I want to get into the key features of the genre, the roguelike game. And I'll note that just like in the discussion of experiences versus video games, this is definitely not a closed discussion. There's still a lot of discussion over what defines the genre as a whole and what are the constraints or not that it should have. But I'd like to define it at least between the two of us. And yes, for our reference. And an important point of defining the genre came out of the International Roguelike Development Conference in 2008. Which is the craziest thing that I learned existed this week. <laughs> Still apparently ongoing in some form or another. And led to the Berlin interpretation. And this gives some really good definitions of the key high-value factors as they define them for various roguelikes. And I I want to go over the elements that, well, the major elements that they list and how important I feel like they, they are to the genre as a whole. And also to delineate what I think is the difference between roguelike and roguelite. Now, one element that I feel like everybody can agree is part of a roguelike is randomized levels procedural generation. Like, yes, you have to have that. But it's something that I feel like trips up a lot of people. Because, honestly, a lot of games do this, but they don't fall within a genre. Like, it's not enough to just have randomized levels. Like, right. simulations like Dwarf Fortress and SimCity can randomize elements. Diablo randomizes its levels. No Man's Sky procedurally generates worlds. Survival crafting games like Minecraft and Don't Starve also procedurally generate their worlds. And those games have can have some claim, depending on how you look at it, on roguelite or roguelike, if you want to. But I would say, like, more... Like, Diablo is more just an action RPG with randomized levels and items. Dwarf Fortress is more just a procedurally generated simulation game. Minecraft and Don't Starve are, are primarily just survival crafting games. Calling them a roguelike that would probably give people an impression of something different than what those games are. And that's part of the reason why I feel like genres are helpful markers for people to use, just to tell you at a glance, what is this thing? What, what should my impressions of this be? Right. And I, I feel like it's also worth mentioning is that I, I, I would agree with you that randomization is important, but it does not necessarily make a roguelike. Um, I have noted this in regards to both Metal Dogs and um, <laughs> Boyfriend Dungeon, in that they both have randomized levels, yes, but <laughs> they are missing other key factors in order to make them a roguelike. 
Um, and, and I think that that's part of the reason why, um, this, this conversation is important is because like when consumers are out buying a game and they're looking for something specifically, if it doesn't have those exact things, then it doesn't really get the right to call itself that. Yeah. It's just unhelpful to try and characterize one thing as something it is not. Yeah. Again, like, you know, to the whole discussion I had basically because of Virginia, it's funny how like our frustrations with like people call it one thing and it's actually another thing led to our lar- two large topics. But yeah, like for me, it was Virginia being classified as an adventure game. I'm like, no, it's not. And <laughs> for you, you were like with Middle Dogs and uh, Boyfriend Dungeon, you're like, randomized levels are not enough. But I think we both can agree that is one of the pillars of being a roguelike. You need to have this if you want to be counted in the genre. Absolutely. And the, another pillar of the genre is definitely permadeath slash making single runs in a game yes now there were innumerable games that were like this in the 80s and 90s that didn't say progress between runs but you wouldn't consider them roguelikes or even roguelites in a way they were just games that you played until you ran out of an artificial number of continues or you didn't have enough quarters and then the the game just ended and you didn't retain Mm -hmm. any progress like that is permadeath in a way, honestly. And I mean, games like that still exist, although most modern games will let you save your progress, at least between levels. But yes, but and I feel like that's part of the reason where this where this originally came from was just the limitations of storage and the ability to save and other things like this. But anyways, obviously, like all of those things by themselves are not but roguelike uh there's also games with time loops that kind of operate in a similar way like outer wilds the upcoming death loop forgotten city and sexy brutale Mm -hmm. that's kind of a variation on permadeath but i would say again like that is more its own thing and other games have characters dying permanently but you have a chance to retrieve their stuff and continue progress i'm thinking in particular the mummy demastered and zombie Zombie, yes. zombie being Zombie U as it originally released on the Wii U, but that has since come to everything. Yeah, and I would almost feel like that's more of a um, Souls-like uh, contribution to the um, the column instead of necessarily a roguelike, but it, but it is similar to the idea of permadeath. Certainly, certainly, and I'm not. I'm not defining those games as roguelike or roguelike simply on those merits, but they absolutely like those are. I, I'm just saying like these are things that are like kind of parallel and like things that are that are similar to, but are not not this like because right. like, you can have elements of permadeath and like again like not be a a roguelike even though. I would say, like, this is the second pillar of if you want to be a roguelike or a roguelite, you need to have something like this. Yes, I would agree with that. And is that the thing that Boyfriend Dungeon and Metal Dogs is lacking? The lack of real permadeath? Yes, absolutely. Um, And that's 
that's a hindrance hugely in Boyfriend Dungeon because unless you reach the um, boss and beat the dungeon, then you will die. And at death, that's when you earn all of your experience for um, that run. So that is, in fact, an exact inversion of a roguelike. Yeah. Um, which, which is, again, uh, you can't sell the game as a roguelike if it is not. Um, if, if instead the only way to gain um, levels were to be to actually complete the dungeon, then that would be a different story. Um, I would maybe consider putting it into the category then, but it is not the case. Um, Metal Dogs, on the other hand... Um, has a XP system that runs with you so that as you kill enemies, you gain XP, but it does <laughs> immediately upon your first death tell you that you do not lose experience, you do not lose items. Um, so, and again, it, it sells itself as a roguelike because of the randomized um, dungeons. So it is, it's, a, and it does not follow that pillar of permadeath. You, you have to lose. <laughs> You have to lose something in order to be in this yeah. category. And both of those games just throw that part out. They say, yeah, we don't want to do that and just chuck it. Yeah, then exactly. Like, then you have no you have no claim on being a rogue, like, in in my opinion, if you do that. Like, I would agree. I would say that is a key part of it. One could even argue that, like, a hardcore mode on Diablo, where if you die once you have to it, like that character is gone forever forever like that it, that might say like that mode like you know actually makes the game rogue light-esque then yeah yeah i would i would almost put that in rogue light light <laughs> yeah it, yeah but yeah that is a that is a key thing is not because otherwise then like it just becomes any other modern video game where you, right. you become assassin's creed for it as i noted like you you die and you get place 10 feet back like you lose basically nothing mm -hmm. which i mean depending on the game like that's not bad i will say like i'm i'm not opposed to that like i like difficult games but i also like games where it's just like you know hey like just kind of go through and unlock all the things and have fun like i can yeah. i can enjoy a spectrum of games like not everything has to be enter the gungeon and sekiro i mean i'd like more games to be like enter the gungeon no, that's that's only because of. Uh, I was going to say you you just like the abuse, but. Uh, <laughs> but but and now after this, like those are the two things. Like you need to have those two things, in my opinion, to be considered roguelike or rogue light, in my opinion. Yes, I would consider those two to be the most important. Um, there can be variations on further things, but those are absolutely must-haves. Yeah, those are non-negotiable in in my mind. And as you know, like it's mainly like the cheating on the permadeath thing. Like I, yeah, I feel like like the randomized level thing is is surprisingly universal in in everything that even pretends to be uh, in the in the rogue light slash light genre. But people get confused. Yes, confused about permadeath. Mm -hmm. And now we start to get to the sticky wicket as far as other elements. And I would say like a third very big pillar for what I would say are roguelites is having the game be turn-based in a way. Mm -hmm. And in traditional rogue, it's step-based where when you perform an action, other monsters will usually be able to be able to take an action at the same time. 
this delineates the passage of time. To me, I feel like that is actually the one big differentiator between rogue likes and rogue lights is the is is whether they are turn based or not, or whether they are whether they are conforming to that or not. And yeah, I feel like that's the defining factor of a lot of rogue lights, and I'll I'll get to the other thing in, in a little bit, but like is that they eschew turn-based combat for more modern forms of combat. And that's totally fine. Like, I'm not... This is not something I'm going through, like, just like we did with experiences, to say, like, more pure is better. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I would probably say... It, I, I'm, once I get through all of these factors, I'm going to lay out, like, what I would say that it, the definition of, like, a pure roguelike it, uh, is since I feel like there's definite levels of purity. Um, mm -hmm. But I feel like a pure roguelike is probably only appealing to a very specific subset of people at this point. For sure. I would agree with that. But that is to me like the big, the big differentiating point is turn-based or not. Because like obviously a lot of games in this category in a, like are not turn-based at all. Mm -hmm. And... I feel like that is the thing that is, frankly, the defining factor. And that's why I, I will use it. That is my personal differentiation, is if something is has real-time combat, I will usually call that a rogue light. Uh, because mm -hmm. usually that, that means it, it conforms to those other two pillars, but not to the third major pillar of a rogue light, like, in my opinion. Mm hmm it's it's very interesting that you mentioned that because I have heard, um, and I don't know if this is um, according to the official Rogue Committee definition, uh, which I'm still stoked exists. I will be the president of that one day. <laughs> um, um, I, I have heard that some people differentiate a rogue like to a rogue light to um, the area the the aspects of permadeath in in the game okay um, some people will say that um, a, a good example um, that a lot of people put into if they are using that definition um, of a rogue light would be um, uh, rogue legacy in that there is some aspects of permadeath and that yes your character does die and that you don't have the experience from them, but you are able to tune up your next run with the money that you have. Um, so that is a way of preventing um, a, a true permadeath, whereas other people will say a rogue like, in order to be the like instead of light, needs to have true permadeath. So they will put Binding of Isaac into the like category, because... Um, even though you unlock new items, there is no way to carry over, except for in certain cases, but that is a very specific thing that will get into the gameplay mechanics that we're not going to go into um, right now, because Binding of Isaac is a strange game. Um, that there is no way to have things from one run into a next run. There is no way to like save your money um, and put it into the next character. There's no way to um, take one item from one character and put it in the next character. It is completely randomized. It is completely permadeath. Each run is a new experience. Um, so I have heard those two distinctions as well. I feel like we'll get into elements of that a little bit later, but I feel like that's mm -hmm. a little too if, if fiddly and nonspecific. Like, 
yeah if, yeah. if you retain like any small amount of progress it's just like well that does that because like you can as you said like there's some where like for the permadeath thing like they basically completely cheat that uh yes and whereas for things like rogue legacy like they just have a small amount of things that you can retain mm. and i mean well that that is just that is just not how i I choose to make that uh, that differentiation right 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 there, but I feel like that, sure, that's, kind sure. of, that's kind of a different that's a different branch of that. I'm just giving my personal interpretation and how I uh, perceive the the genre, and it's interesting, like how like again that shows like how passionate people are and how they feel about like what defines thing or, things or not. Like that's. That's me looking at that and saying, like, well, obviously, like the turn-based nature of these dungeon crawlers usually uh, it mm-hmm. is a key differentiator, and for other people, it's the the element of like, what would he retain after death? So, right. uh, and I can certainly respect that. I mean, and to give an example of this, like for something that I actually consider a good roguelike, even though it doesn't have a traditional turn-based system, is FTL faster than light, and part mm-hmm. of that is because even though combat can take place in real time, you can pause at any time to enter commands. So mm-hmm. even though actions occur in real time, it can essentially be boiled down to time passing. Time passes for you and enemy ships at the same rate. You do make other decisions in a... Uh, and time is also passing as you are going along in the star system like you can't linger long like there's a rebel fleet that is coming to kill you so you need to continue making progress while visiting enough planets to build yourself up it is very much a rogue like in my opinion in the classical sense it's just that the environment is obviously very different than a traditional rogue like uh in that Mm. you're controlling a starship instead of being in a dungeon yeah yeah but there are other elements, and these are weighed heavily in the Berlin interpretation, but I feel like they're, they're, they're somewhat secondary. One of them is a non-modal, and that's basically every action should be available to the player, regardless of where they are in the game. So that's like things where you could attack a shopkeeper or do anything else that you could in a combative area and the non-combative area. There's also a degree of complexity creating emergent gameplay. One thing noted, uh, the use of a petrifying cockatrice and having a gloves to protect protect you from it so you can use that as a weapon in mm-hmm. Hacknet. <laughs> the use of resource, manage- uh, resource management to survive perhaps having stamina decay that I feel like Mm. can be kind of difficult to nail down though. Like definitely in that category would be like, as I mentioned in FTL, you cannot linger in a star system forever or else the rebel fleet will catch up to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I mean, like definitely enter the gungeon has elements of that, like having to manage your, your limited resource. Another secondary thing is basically just based upon hack and slash gameplay where other peaceful options do not exist. 
Okay, sure. I mean, like again, like that that is also a lot of video games, but whatever. Yeah. And the game requires the player to explore the map to discover the purpose of unidentified items in a matter that resets everything uh, through a playthrough. Definitely some classic games in this had basically mysterious unidentified items. I feel like this is, again, like another one of those things that to those classic uh, dungeon hack games they they had. But it's also something worth noting that Toe Jam and Earl also had. And that is one of the world's first rogue lights, in my opinion. In that the levels were randomly generated, and you can find items in presents you find all around the level. And what is in the different colored presents is different in every game. So you had to mm-hmm. remember it. So Rotova Jam and Earl is a, a very fascinating game. I played through it with a friend. It's a it, there's definitely a bit of a curve to it, but a really, really interesting game. Now, low value factors that they're mentioning is controlling only one single character. Monster behaviors are similar to the player behaviors and that they can have similar actions. Using ASCII characters on a tile-based map. Uh, Having a tactical challenge may requiring the player to play through multiple times. Mm -hmm. Involvement exploring dungeons, which are made of rooms and interconnecting corridors. Uh, perhaps there are open areas, though this is considered against the interpretation. And the stand of the player and the game through numbers on the screen interface, like those are all low value interpretation. I feel like if you take all of those into mind, like that, that comes down to a more pure version of roguelike. Like if you're if hmm. you're if you're going for like all of those major things I mentioned, then you were a pure lo- roguelike. Yeah, in the and it's it's way. interesting with um, the stats that you mentioned because um, I I mentioned that I played Cheer and the Wanderer recently um, a couple weeks back I think it was and there that game does have an option for that to have the stats displayed on screen. Um, similarly, um, other action um, a Binding of Isaac also has that kind of um, stat display screen as well. Yeah. It is definitely an element of a decent number of those games, but yeah, yeah, like I, yeah, looking at all that, like obviously for a lot of games, I feel like after you get past permadeath and the random dungeon generation, you have a lot of elements that I think a lot of modern games that are trying to fit into that category just do not follow or, or aren't designed to follow, frankly. Mm-hmm. But I think if you are, if there was some accommodation for most of those factors, you are a pure roguelike. And if you go to all of those lo- low value factors that I mentioned, like, you know, like having asking interpretation and controlling, uh, like the things like that, then you are being trying to be a rogue clone basically yes that is a Mm -hmm. very specific thing and that's what i was talking about in that there are certain things that are designed to appeal to a very particular set of people and i know they're out there but like if we wanted to be that much of a stickler for things then like almost nothing would count as a roguelike anymore right i am a bit more liberal on it than that but 
Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, to move into modern terms, the genre has obviously exploded a lot, mainly since, as I mentioned, Spelunky influenced a lot of indie game designers, and then, obviously, Isaac influenced even more. Mm -hmm. And... In my mind, I feel like a lot of modern so-called roguelikes or roguelites are more like uh, an Isaac-like. And to me, the element of an Isaac-like is you are action-based, but also with the permadeath, there are things that persist across runs, whether they're mm -hmm. items you unlock or new characters you can use. You see this in Hades, Enter the Gungeon, Risk of Rain, to name a few. Like, you'd get stuff, even though you die permanently and you start over, there are still things you retain. And to me, that is what defines an Isaac-like. Yeah, there's definitely an element in Binding of Isaac that once you get to a certain point, <laughs> um, that no run is useless, essentially. Um, because you can always kind of be donating to the shop, which will expand the shop items, uh, the selection that you have there. Um, you, If you beat certain bosses or certain characters, they unlock an item. Um, if you beat a run with a character completely, that'll unlock a different item and a different character sometimes. And so that is a very standard thing that a lot of these new... Um, that, like you said, Isaac likes do... Um, I know that Dead Cells did something very similar with that, in that when you beat the final boss, you unlock a um, boss cell, which allows you to then essentially challenge the next difficulty, but unlocks more items, more enemies to face off against. Um, Gungeon sort of does that. Well, it does it a lot more with the items kind of area, but not so much with the enemies and, um, and, and difficulty modes. Um, so there is definitely a element of in these, as you said, Isaac likes, every run is a is a step forward. Yeah, you get something. Like, obviously in Hades, you can unlock certain things. You, you grow more powerful, in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, to some people, that might completely break the idea of having, excuse me, an, a roguelike or a roguelite at all. But, I mean, that is obviously the contrivance of the game and that is that is what is go it is going for but that's why like again to show like the influence of of isaac like i just see the handprints of isaac everywhere in a lot of modern games uh mm -hmm. and particularly in the roguelikes like i was thinking that even though like i've obviously played entered the gungeon to the end and i have not done so for isaac like even from what i've seen from isaac i was just thinking about like how much the designers of enter the gungeon must have loved uh, Binding of Isaac. <laughs> yeah. There's even a Binding of Isaac item in Enter the Gungeon. <laughs> and yeah, to your point about like Rogue Legacy, that is obviously another thing that was, I think, like influenced by Isaac, but like also uh, Spelunky to agree. Like Spelunky, by the way, it's worth noting, like is very hardcore as far as what you retain. I believe you actually don't retain anything between runs in Spelunky. It is a very very challenging game 
But yes, I have played a teeny bit of that, and that is a unforgiving game. Yeah, totally. It's it doesn't tell you what a lot of things do. You're it's very easy to die. That's why yeah. even the head designer is like, you shouldn't approach Spelunky as far as like, hey, I'm I'm definitely gonna beat this since you know a lot of people are just not going to be good enough and play the game yeah. long enough to be able to get to the end and mm-hmm. be willing mm-hmm. to deal with the what the game is throwing at you. But yeah, to your point, like, rogue lights have really taken over the indie sphere. You mentioned Ro- Dead Cells, like, that has Pathfinder slash Metroidvania-style elements to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Slay the Spire has deck building elements to it. Crypt the Necrodancer is a rhythm game in a roguelike dungeon. Like that's actually a very you can actually see the roguelike influence in that a lot closer than than a lot of these other games. Since it's kind of functionally a turn based game, and other enemies move at the same time you do. So yeah, yeah, and um, and worth noting about Slay the Spire as well is that um it is it's i feel like that is a breaching point a a branching point into as well the deck building elements of the now um roguelike genre or in a way isaac like genre i feel like that is also taking on another shape itself which shows how um the genre itself is stretching and bending over time um I, I don't I haven't seen Slay the Spire seen as see as much success as Binding of Isaac or Dead Cells has, but it is definitely another aspect of that, which there are other turn based roguelike that are not necessarily like rogue. I'm I'm also thinking of um uh Into the Breach, which is a strategy RPG rogue like in a way. Yeah, yeah, that definitely arguably has elements of that since everything is run-based and you unlock things as you go. It, Yeah, and there's a, a game, speaking of uh, deck-building options, the game Hand of Fate. That is a rather interesting roguelite game in that... You move a character along a set of cards, and it's in a Mm -hmm. deck that you build for yourself. Mm -hmm. And, but some of the encounters in there are somewhat randomly generated, and sometimes there's there's brief like you have to pick a card games. But I remember thinking of that 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 had some rogue light s elements to it. But at the same time, like even as you're making decisions and moving through the cards, and that's a complete turn based thing. Like the combat in the game is actually in uh, real time. So whenever you actually have to fight something, it is like a it, it is a three D action game. And. I remember I ended up using the Explorer to finally get to the end of that because I believe I believe every other class they have to consume food to mm-hmm. and that's another obviously element of the genre to move between spaces and I believe the Explorer d- does not consume food or if they do consume food it's either that or they can cons- or they they don't take damage if they run out of food it's one of those two but anyways like that mitigated the whole food thing and that made it much more tolerable to me but 
Yeah, that's what I was warming up there for a while when it comes to just Isaac. Like, I feel like the children of Isaac and not in a literal sense in the way that that occasionally very gross game works, but just. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just the influence that Binding of Isaac has had on video games and indie games, even the most prominent indie games over the past 10 years or so. Uh, mm-hmm. has come to light like even as i because i remember like again like in a right of the be- beginning of this process like from spelunky and ftl like i remember definitely a decade ago a lot of people did talk about those games and love them a lot but like if you want to talk about direct influence if you can look at this game and take a one-to-one to other games like like binding of isaac has been huge in the indie sphere yeah absolutely um and and to the point that, like, when a lot of people um, are talking about uh, indie games, a lot of times the conversation will turn to Binding of Isaac because it does have that um, just starling reputation uh, because it's got Ed McMillan, who does a lot of really great development. Um, it has a decently sized budget. Um, Rebirth has been supported by Nicholas. Um which uh, has helped that immensely see more distribution everywhere uh, from just PC over onto the Vita, onto the PS4, PS5, Switch, Xbox One, um, 3DS. It's just seen a massive release. So there's this, this indie darling of Binding of Isaac that has, you know, kind of surged this idea of, oh, well, I could be the next one. And I feel like, um, that's a danger to me because I really like Binding of Isaac. <laughs> um, but I, I definitely feel like a lot of people want to be that next game. And I don't think that a lot of them, I, I don't know that a lot of them kind of take things the way that Isaac does, because it is like you mentioned a very gross, weird game. Um, but it, it's also kind of not necessarily the first of its kind, but it's definitely the most popular of its kind. Yeah, certainly. And to note, just for the record, I consider the unlocking of persistent features to be a consistent feature in these popularized Isaac likes, as I said. Like, I feel like that one element mm-hmm. right there, like, which gives uh, purpose to even uh, runs that are unsuccessful. And usually in these games, most runs are going to be unsuccessful. But mm-hmm. that is to me a defining factor of the Isaac-like strain of rogue lights. Uh, yeah. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think that persistent unlocks is something that also makes the genre a little bit nicer to approach. Um, the One of the big additions to um, Rebirth was the addition of more characters. One which could arguably be um, said to be easy mode, but it does allow for players to kind of find a different way to play the game. And um, I know that Hades does that as well with the weapons in that you unlock new aspects, which change the way the weapons play as well. Um, Enter the Gungeon does that with, with the different weapons that you unlock, which makes the game a lot easier to proceed throughout as well because there are a lot more powerful weapons that you get towards the end of the game versus the front of the game. And I, it, it's also interesting because um, in a way, uh, the more recent Sheer and the Wanderer games have also done that. Um, 
the the one that I was most recently playing has a character who um, you have to beat the first um, tower to have her usable, but she can turn into a katana that will um, grow her level throughout the game. So again, it's another way to play the game. I feel like that. I I feel like that's a very and maybe Sheer and the Wanderer wasn't directly inspired by that, but it is a way to make the genre more available, and it is very distinctly, in a way, Isaac Isaacian. Yeah, and and this is where we get into the like the difference between retaining things between runs and unlocking things, and permadeath can be a little bit sticky depending on how you're finding it. And I mean, like, that's why, as you mentioned, Rogue Legacy, some people do not consider that a roguelike and consider that a roguelike, I guess, because of what you retain. But like, to me, that is part of the persistent unlocks between games, honestly. Like, yeah. that is that is that element right there. And I feel like that's just part of the fact that genres are always evolving. And like the video game sphere is such a vital and interesting space because there's always new ideas on things. And we'll see things like Boyfriend Dungeon, as you mentioned, like a dating simulator, simulator slash uh, dungeon crawler. And... Mm-hmm. I mentioned like Toe Jam and Earl, which might be one of the earliest examples of that. You know, when I played through that game, I didn't actually realize that it was a roguelite at, at all, like until I I got into it. And like, again, like I'm glad I was with a friend who was able to guide me on a lot of the factors of it. But that that is a interesting example of like how like the genre has kind of been looping back for a long time until mm-hmm. now it's just be- become a uh, a feedback loop that's that is never ending seemingly in the indie sphere uh yeah and, yeah for sure and it's just a thing that a lot of games do and other games like loop hero for instance which isn't a classic rogue light or light in any way but it's definitely influenced by that because everything is is run based and you have a randomly generated deck so it's like a weird combination of idle game, rogue lights, deck builder, uh, like strategy game. Like it has elements of all of those. But that's part of the reason why I think it's managed to really hit off with a lot of people is just because there, there literally is nothing exactly like Looper out there. Uh, and right. even though that makes it, it difficult to describe, and I don't think what it does is going to be is necessarily going to appeal to everybody in part because of just the somewhat passive gameplay. Like the hero is walking around a loop and you are not actually directly controlling them. And that's obviously not going to be for everybody, but yeah. Yeah. I I have already made a smart decision and said that game is not for me, but it does, <laughs> it does pull from that kind of um, family of genres. Yeah. It's no, and we all have to, make those decisions for ourselves. I will say for me, like I, I wouldn't say I dislike uh, roguelites or roguelikes in general, but like, it's not something that unlike you, you really gr- grok to them. You really love them. Uh, for me, I tend to actually like persistence and, and I like levels that I can kind of memorize or try and learn or things like that. And that is not the way that most of the uh, roguelites work since obviously there, there is random, random generation. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I I have been glued to the genre for a long time now. There's I, I think there's just a very nice feeling to me about that always a second chance kind of element to it. Um, that even if the hand you're dealt this time is bad, next time it might be better. Um, I and I do like that randomization and that permadeath and that like every time you start over, it it's a fresh start. It's it's a nice feeling to me. Um, a, a comment you made a few weeks ago is that I play roguelikes in um, in in place of souls likes, and I think that's very true. Um, the the difficulty of both of those genres is noted. Um, but I have been able to throw myself into Isaac for 300 hours and into Enter the Gungeon for 300 hours. And that's just something that appeals to me. <laughs> well, that's understandable. And like, and the fact that every run is going to be different, I understand that. And, you know, just to show like how probably this genre has become like probably the biggest budgets roguelike to ever come out, like in Returnal came out this year. And yes. That is definitely a rogue light. Uh, it is definitely hitting on the genre. You have you have permadeath. You start the run all the way over. Levels are randomly generated, and in fact, some people might even say that it is an Isaac like in that there are things you definitely unlock between each run. And but persistent experience is and uh, and progress is not one of them. Incidentally, I just want to add how much I really like the box art of Returnal. I think it's one of the strongest box art as compared to like one of the worst I've seen of all time, which is that Onimusha game. Like Returnal is one of the mm-hmm. best ones because it has like the the main the main character. Like you see her helmets that have been like various variations of them that have been destroyed, destroyed, clawed, exploded, blasted through things like that. And it's in and it's framed in such a way that like you know, but it has her helmet front and center and she just has this this look in her face like, like this time this time is going to be yeah. time and just mm-hmm. just to emphasize like how this this has happened again and again and again but the main character is determined to see it all the way through so anyway just very good subtle work on that that artwork there but uh but yeah, that is that shows like the full extent of where the genre has gone. Is there there anything else you want to add about it? Um, I think um to to discuss box art on roguelikes. I also think that Isaac has had some good ones as well. Um, different from Returnal, uh, all of them feature Isaac crying and uh, in some form of mutilation. Um, the most recent and final one of um. Repentance probably has the best, I would think, with some strong colors. It shows the mother character coming after Isaac on the floor with a knife, and there are tons of references to the items. So I I think that that's also strong. But yes, I box art can be very nice with a roguelike as well. Not often do you see them, though, because a lot of them are indie games. Yeah, and they don't have prominent art for them, at least not yeah. the same way. Yeah. Enter the Gungeon just had a, a Bulletkin's face as that box art. <laughs> That's right. And that is also the logo of the game for just, excuse me, on the, on the, uh, on the bar for the PlayStation 4. It's probably like that for yes. It's just the face of a Bulletkin. Yep. 
but and I mean that's the way you can use simplicity to define artwork, but exactly, yeah. But anyways, I think that sums up my thoughts pretty well on what I think defines the genre. And we appreciate anybody who's listened to to through to this point to hear us ramble on about what we think defines the genre. But again, I feel like it's just an important point to say like what is what and what your expectations should be. Absolutely. Developers, stop selling me roguelikes that are not roguelikes. <laughs> Particularly for Tuesday, since they're more likely to buy all of the roguelikes. Yeah. See them, yeah. See them go like, oh, roguelike, you know, put this in my body right now. Yeah, it's it's reaching the point where one day I'm just going to buy one of, like, it's going to be like, hey, rogue baby, and I'm going to be like, sick. And it's just going to be a baby raising sim. <laughs> <laughs> Like, how is this that at all? And it's like, you know, well, every uh, every run is different, but uh, but this run run takes three years. This one takes eighteen years and six mortgages on your house. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you save for college. <laughs> but, anyways, thank you all for listening through to this point, and. Next week, we will be talking about Metroid Samus Returns. That is what we're going to talk about. And we hope you all join us. And again, thank you for listening through us with us on this roguelike discussion. And hopefully we'll see you all next time. Yes, bye, everyone.